This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to episode 19 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. And we're back again the second time a month. We're on a hot streak because right here, as always, is me, Trevor Dame. And as always, next to me through the power of the Internet is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're back again already two weeks. That's very brisk by our recent standards. I'm right here by your side. So yes. that's the important thing. Um, it's the holiday season for uh, people who like religion and uh, have it. So that's good for them. And and us, and um, so this is a special holiday treat. You might say that um, this is an extra Easter egg kind of episode of Through the Years. Oh, I'm actually ignoring a um, spring break Easter slash block party to do this podcast. So I am glad to have the excuse to avoid my neighbors. So this episode's going to be I'm going to be extra gra- I'm going to be like Daniel Bryan and be extra grateful during but, the recording of this episode. But people from Western Canada are so nice. Uh, not this neighborhood. <laughs> they egged my car the other week, Matt. Really? <laughs> the hoodlum kids of Kelowna, British Columbia. Man, that is yes. bad. But you know who will not f- make you feel angry, frustrated, and having to deal with a lot of dried yolk are the fine people at the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Every episode, we like to recommend one specific episode of a podcast on the network because there's so many good ones. But this is also <laughs> a reminder, there are just a lot of really good ones in general. So just because I don't say it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to it. So go search. There's a lot of good stuff. But this episode, I will recommend a recent podcast, the mothership of all podcasts on the network, The Place to Be Podcast, episode 483. Can you imagine? I just said 19, thinking I'm all highfalutin. This is a podcast with 483 episodes. And that episode in particular that recently came out covers Saturday night's main event, episode 12 from 1987 with Justin Scott and our old friend Chad Campbell. Hey, we talk to that guy sometimes, Matt. We know that guy. That guy is our mentor, our leader, our hero in some ways. I just want to mention that I I apologize for that cough. I thought my mute button was on, but it wasn't. So, Uh, Don't worry about it. I'm sure there'll be all manner of noises happening during this podcast, some of them even words. So, actually, we last episode, we did not have much news to get into before we re- reviewed the show. Matt, this time, I think we have a fair bit to get into because I guess the first order of business is um, if you're going chronologically with us through these shows, through the years, so to speak, there is a show, The Ring of Honor slash fwa uk show it was like a dual branded show although it seems it was really like a fwa a promotion in the uk show that just happened to have some ring of honor talent on we are not reviewing that show today we are reviewing do or die we have decided to skip that show it's not really a ring of honor show i consider prop improper it looking at the reviews of it it didn't exactly have um really like no one hated it, but it, it's not like a show that with any must-see matches from the reviews I read. It's not and, really, but not really part of the continuity, except to, to, that it made Samoa Joe's title the world title. 
Exactly. It, it's not really, I guess, whether it's a, cano- a canonical uh, um, edition. There's no storylines other than, as Matt just said, the one thing we will get from the show that will be referenced on Do or Die is that Ring of Honor will now call the title a world title because Samoa Joe made a defense here in the United Kingdom. So it's, it is like I, I appreciate that they did made the effort to be like, all right, we're not going to call it a world title till we defend it outside the U.S. But I also always find that kind of cute and charming in a weird way of like well we had one title defense outside of the u.s so now it's a world title like yeah i'm guessing like the famous world titles like the nwa wwf i'm guessing they were considered world titles even before they were defended outside of the u.s probably not considered but you know called world titles by their respective promotions you know because it's fake yeah i mean I've only been to one country other than my home and native land, Canada, which is the United States. So, like, really? you I made a bad, you myself. made a bad choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I liked. It has a del- Matt. You have a delightful selection of sodas that I love to partake in. It's true. Um, in Canada, they have like gravy soda, right? Like ketchup soda, <laughs> like all these weird flavors. No, but like in America, just if you want to know the difference between Canada and America, side tangent, we have basically most of what you guys have. It's just like. We'll have three flavors. You'll have 20 flavors of everything. Hmm. Like, your supermarket has so much more choice among the brands, Matt. I mean, I guess that's capitalism for you. Doesn't do, (laughs) doesn't, it doesn't, the main thing it does is it provides us with extra choices of how to kill ourselves. (laughs) And I do mine with aspartame. Hmm. But, um, yeah, yeah, uh, I was just going to say, like, I wouldn't consider myself a world traveler. Having only visited one other country, although I guess the jump between the U.S. and the U.K. is farther than just crossing the border from Canada to the U.S. But anyway, I thought we would still at least briefly go over the events of that show because there was actually one other development I forgot about from this show. The first thing is, it was actually the even though I technically don't consider this a Ring of Honor show, the announced crowd was 1,100 fans, which would be the uh, biggest crowd Ring of Honor had done for a show that isn't theirs or a show that is theirs. So, which shows that really nobody considered this an ROH show because you know nobody talked about like this being ROH's attendance record, even though it would hold as their biggest attendance probably up until like almost almost a year later, right? Well, um, would Death Before Dishonor? Coming up soon in New Jersey with the Jeff Hardy big boost. I mean, I think that will do over a thousand, but it's at worst, it's very similar. Mm-hmm. Like, right. But yeah, I mean, at to this point, it would blow it away because I think their largest attendance before the FWA show would would have been um, the anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. Where, which would have been what? Uh, 700 people maybe or something like that. So this blows that away. And the matches on the show, I'll just go over the ones with Ring of Ring of Honor involvement. Um, they did a whole Ring of Honor versus FWA gimmick, and they had uh, James T versus beat Paul London in ten minutes thirty four seconds. Jack Xavier beat Mikey Whipwreck eleven fifty seven. AJ Styles beat Johnny Storm in fifteen fifty eight. Samoa Joe beat the Zebra Kid in a match he made in impro- impromptu style. He made the, a world title match. The ze- so that- it's, it's England, the Zebra Kid. The Zebra. <laughs> I think that is how they pronounced it. I'm. I'm not sure. I know we see we say in in the countries ruled by the Queen we say Zed instead of Z. Although I break with that, but because um, the ABC song doesn't rhyme if you don't end with Z, but. Yeah, that's pretty uh, good looking out, Matt. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure I actually heard someone say that. That's the only reason I brought it up. Like on the uh, 
on possibly on the show tonight. That's really interesting, actually. Samoa Joe so defeated the Zebra Kid in 9:36. Um, Flash Barker and Low Key went to a 20-minute time limit draw, and then in the main event, Christopher Daniels beat Jody Fleish in 23:58. So w- the other big story, other than coming out of this, other than the attendance and ROH's title becoming a world title, is Low Key gets hurt in this match. Um, the Observer right after this that um, discussed it said he had uh, hurt his collarbone and then later like an issue one or two weeks later uh, changes that to low key is out two months with a dislocated shoulder but either way this is the match apparently where he suffered that injury and that will be keeping uh, low key will be on this show tonight that we're reviewing do or die but with his arm in a sling so it did affect ring of honor in that sense yeah that's right and that I guess sort of not Exactly, but sort of marks the end of Loki's like major run in ROH as someone who would be considered the top baby face. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it had already been kind of slipping away for a while now, but the, I'd say this really, it's done now. They'll ne- they never get back to that. Yeah, and the idea that you know Loki almost always felt like he was involved in a major match, apart from maybe that that tag he did against Special K. I mean, not that he didn't play a, a significant role in some ways in the show tonight, but when it's weird, like once you see Loki reduced to guy who's just doing an interview segment and being a manager, basically, like it's weird, even though I know they couldn't have done anything else tonight. But yeah, to see this guy that was always in the first few shows, everything was built around him. He was in a major match every show. And now, you know, the company's big enough and changing direction enough that you know, low key can kind of just be on the fringes of the show and it doesn't really matter. I would, you know, I know we've talked about this before, like after he first lost the title, but I would love to know like all the backstage like goings on that led to low key, you know, going from being basically the, you know, the, the quote ace of the company to, you know, really not being, you know, cause it was, like I said, it was starting before this injury and this injury just sealed the deal. I mean, he's clearly never going to be the top, babyface ever again not even really come close to it and i you know it's, it's such it was, it was such a dramatic turn from the way the direction they were going at the fred first and obviously we know loki's reputation but i would still love to hear you know what the decision making process was that led to loki's status in the company changing so dramatically yeah part of me wonders if it's also just the first instance of Gabe's always been a guy who, once he was done, it always seemed like once he's done with a guy as world champion, he's done with them at that level. Like he'll still try and push them in the card and give them significant things. But if you've seen how he's handled guys like Samoa Joe, even to this day in Evolve and stuff, it seems like once a guy has their big title run, you know, he, he Gabe is not a fan of like the two or three time champion. He's always like a guy gets their one big run. And then they can still be a player, but they're never going to get to that level again. The difference is Loki never got his big title run. Yeah, ex- exactly. If anything, his big run was before he won the title, and that kind of singled signaled the end of it. Right. You know, because they, they, because the booking at first made it seem like you know Loki would have the title stolen from him, and the build would be to him winning it back, to chasing it, and he never really even gets to really chase it. Yeah, he doesn't even really get revenge. I mean. The first show of 2003, which we've reviewed, look back in the archives, Revenge on the Prophecy, even that, like, just very quickly writes that angle 
over. He doesn't get a rematch with Xavier. He doesn't get a match, a rematch with Christopher Daniels, even though in their last encounter, Daniels pinned, you know, in the four way at crowning a champion, Daniels gets a direct clean pin over Loki. It just very quickly. He's out of that, and, that, and that top scene. And I'm pretty sure actually Loki only gets one other world title shot ever again in ROH. And it's uh, it's in a four way match uh, in two thousand and four, but yeah, we'll yeah, so. we'll we'll wait and see if that if that turns out to be true. So yeah, that, that's that's something interesting, and we will not in this episode, but in later episodes in two thousand three, we will definitely get into the the first big instance of low key Ring of Honor promoter drama that happens at least in Ring of Honor. Um, oh, I, well, I'm looking at these notes. One other note. Dave Dave Meltzer, of course, says that Ring of Honor did record merchandise business at the uh, FWA show. So, and that everyone in the crowd knew all the Americans and were really into them. So, I guess maybe a sign that you know Ring of Honor was already a fairly big, probably tape product, even overseas at this point. If this is to be believed, they were an and, over. They were becoming an over brand of wrestling, which is makes sense because they're doing good stuff. Yeah, and, and in fact, um. Steve Carino, I think it's about the show, has an interesting anecdote where uh, they wanted to book Steve Carino as to be one of the ROH guys in this ROH versus FWA Frontiers of Honor show. And Steve Carino was like, why would that make sense? Like, I'm part of this group called The Group, and our whole point is we book ourselves and we're kind of against Ring of Honor, which I don't know if I've ever quite seen it that way, but that's how um, Carino describes it, like that yeah. they were kind of against Ring of Honor. Part of the confusion of the booking, because I thought it was the prophecy that was against Ring of Honor, and the group, you know, like Samoa Joe was part of it, and he shook hands. It's, it's just very confusing. Yeah, but the funny thing is, like, Carino was basically saying, like, they want me to do this show. I turned it down. And then he gives this kind of funny aside where he was like, if they had paid me what I was what I wanted, I would have done it. So, yeah. he, he, like, he does this funny thing in the shoot where he goes in this whole thing about, like, you know, how it would have made the storyline not make sense and stuff. But then he's like, well, if they had given me what I want, I would have done it. But right. they didn't give me enough money to make it look – make the angle look stupid in my eyes, basically. Uh-huh. So that, that's an interesting note. Um Dave writes in The Observer around this time that Ring of Honor is now looking at peaking for three major events every year with the 719 show in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which would be Death Before Dishonor being the next one. So it's interesting that at this point, I don't know if Ring of Honor sticks to that, the idea that we're going to have like three tentpole shows a year. But they, Yeah, in some ways they do, in some ways they don't. Like they do have those three big shows. But I wouldn't necessarily think say that like feuds and angles peaked on those shows most years. I think it's sort of like they would have some big matches, but there would also be plenty of other peaks during the year. Uh, that's sort of how I how I saw it anyway. Yeah, yeah, like even um, at the like even at the time back then, I never looked at. Um, I was never going like, oh man, I can't wait for Death Before Dishonor. You know, there's going to be a big car at Death Before Dishonor. Like to me, just as a fan at the time, it always felt like big matches happened when it was time for them to happen. It never felt like, you know, you know they're going to book something extra special for this. Eventually they got to that point with Final Battle where for a period you felt like, well, they were going to pull out something special for most Final Battles. But even at this point... The only final battle we've seen was 2002, which was not a special feeling show at all. Yeah, and if you look through the years, titular line, um, you get um, you can see that the, there are different events that are the biggest show of each year. You yeah. know, like I, I think we could fairly say uh, Death Before Dishonor is the biggest show of 2003. Um, 
I would say it was definitely not the biggest show in 2004. It's uh, right. It's kind of hard actually to pin down which show it was. Uh, probably the Jushin Liger shows. And uh, you know, 2005, you have um, you have the anniversary shows, Kobashi shows. 2006, you have Glory by Honor. So it's it's very you know it's all over the place. I think so. But it is good that they developed these brand name shows because you did know yeah. like they would be they'd be something. They wouldn't just be throwaway shows. But yeah, it's interesting to think uh, you, you saying that um, what the biggest show of 2003 is, Death Before Dishonor, I agree, but maybe quickly think, well, what would I consider the biggest show of 2002? And I guess that would be maybe All-Star Extravaganza, and they don't even have an All-Star Extravaganza in 2003. It doesn't, it's not till 2004, I think, that they bring that, that, that name back. So Yeah, and it doesn't come back in 05 or 06. Yeah, so... Yeah, interesting the, the way they're, they they want a branding, but it's not always like – it's not like a WWE type. You always know it's going to be big at Mania, big at the Rumble, all that stuff. But um, looking at the little other bits of Ring of Honor news that were occurring at this time, Dave wrote that the pro- Ring of Honor is high on Matt Stryker and Danny Moth as their next stars. So we'll see that they get <laughs> pushes. Will they become their next big stars? Uh, not so much. Um Funny little note that Dave wrote about uh, the epic encounter he wrote weeks and weeks after he finally got the tape of that. Dave writes, with the new lighting, Ring of Honor looked more professional. But if you're a fan of ROH, that's kind of irrelevant. Uh, he thought the American Dragon Paul London match was excellent. But he said it while it ranked with the best matches in company history, he wouldn't rate it as the best. So I wonder if Dave would consider what his what Dave would consider the best at this point. Probably low-key Danielson, I would imagine. Yeah. The one. Yeah, or the or the original three-way. Yeah. I, I have to imagine those are the only two that I think would... Re- especially, I don't think Dave was watching every show at this point. I think those are the only two, like, major matches you would probably put in that level. Yeah, Dave can be kind of a dick. Um, he Because he, he goes... Uh, you know, he's, he's someone who always rails about production and stuff like that. And then ROH improves, and he's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. And, and also, I think he's fully wrong about that. I think that definitely made a difference for everybody, uh, including the fans who just wanted to watch the great wrestling. The presentation being upgraded uh, made the product better for peop- for everybody. I-, I think it speaks to the early days of independent wrestling where I feel like people back then almost felt, especially people like Dave, felt like wrestling was in two stratospheres, which was like you're the casual fan – in which case stuff like production matters or you're the ultra hardcore fan, in which case like nothing matters but the wrestling. And I, I think what we've learned, at least it wrestling has evolved into this. I think there are different stratospheres of fans, more like gradations of them where I know there are fans that will watch PWG, but they won't watch any other indie or, you know, like this idea that production doesn't matter if you're watching an indie I think there's still something to be said for good commentary, like a nice-looking atmosphere. Yeah, and also like just that. just like a personality and character. Like ECW, obviously didn't, ha- especially for like you know before like the you know TNN era and stuff. It didn't have high quality production by like typical standards as far as like sleekness. But I think the production values were important to ECW. It had its own thing. It had character. It wasn't just a you know it wasn't just a bland-looking gymnasium. You know, that could have been any indie. You know, ECW was ECW. And ROH was mostly just a bland-looking indie. And then it became what ROH looks like. So that, you know, having your own character and personality 
is important for the production as well as just a wrestler or the booking, you know? Yeah, I mean, a week or two ago, PWG moved from Reseda into the Globe Theater, and fans there i saw a bunch of fans that were tweeting pictures of like the new production setup that looked way nicer like the big backdrop and the lighting and all that and people were going oh man this is so cool so you know those are the hardest of hardcore wrestling fans you know attending live shows like that and even in that case like the improvement in production that was immediately something they were excited about so this idea that it doesn't mean anything to wrestling fans yeah like I'm sure it doesn't mean anything to some, but not all. Just because you like indie wrestling doesn't mean you don't like a a nice looking show. Agreed. But uh, one and the last little news note we have from here from this time is Dave writes: Ring of Honor is planning on doing a tournament based on the Japanese Super Juniors or Championship Carnival tournament with a round robin among the regulars who don't work Japan. Like Chad Collier, although he writes in brackets, although he sometimes does. Matt Stryker, <laughs> Tony Mamaluke, Colt Cabana, CM Punk, BJ Whitmer, Tom C- Carter, and others as a way to elevate one or two guys into the main event mix. Of course, this would um, end up being the Frontiers of Honor no, the, round rob. The Field oh, of Honor. Oh, yeah, Field of Honor. Yeah, I screwed that up. I was talking about the Frontier Wrestling earlier, and that yep. jangled my brain, Matt. Thank you again. And, um,. Oh, yeah, so it's interesting that they were already planning at this point. And it's funny that the one name that stands out is CM Punk because I feel like already by this show, he's already too big for the idea of a round-robin tournament that elevates mid-carters because, as we will quickly get to, CM Punk was all over the show and had his fingers in a lot of pies. And so maybe at one point when they first conceived of this, they saw CM Punk as a mid-carter that could use a boost, but... Like, obviously, once we get to the Field of Honor tournament, he is no longer, you know, he's nowhere near that thing. Yeah, not even close. Yeah, so, um, Do or Die, the show we are covering today, took place May 31st, 2003, at the Murphy Rec Center in good old Philadelphia, our usual home, in front of a sellout of 500 fans. Of course, who knows what that really means, but it is, I will note, you know, often Dave would say 400, 450, so... Maybe Ring of Honor slowly climbing up, even in their home base. Um, Dave writes this. I just wrote this down as a reminder because I could have picked this up on my own. But he said, "Ring of Honor debuted a new ring, half red and half black, similar to the elder the not the elderly, similarly similar to the early '80s dual color All Japan ring." Matt, Matt, I know when we were uh, we were talking about the show in Messenger, you were talking about how like. Ring of Honor was really pushing the production here to a to a sweet spot you like. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, Dave was talking about the incre- you know, upgrade in production uh, at Epic Encounter, and this takes that to, you know, a million notches above. I mean, this is, I would say, this show alone is the biggest individual single show leap in production they have ever had, ever. Um you know, maybe even including once they got on HDNet and when they were bought by Sinclair and all that stuff. The the difference between production uh, from the shows earlier in 2003 to this one are gigantic, and there are a number of reasons for that. For one thing, the lighting uh, is back, but I, I don't know if they upgraded a second time or if it was because of the time of day, but there is a... Even a major difference in the look of this show and Epic Encounter. The arena is much darker, um, so the so the spotlight when it's on the ring, uh, it's it's it seems much uh, it just seems much more uh, noticeable and intense. 
it's, it's you know it was definitely there in Epic Encounter, but the Ruff, the Murphy Rec Center still kind of felt like the Murphy Rec Center. This you could watch at least at parts and not even realize it was the same building. Like it's it's just incredibly different. Um, beyond that, you had the the new uh, the new mat, which I thought looked cool. I don't, uh, it, it was up my alley, yeah. and then. Um, one other thing before I get to probably the biggest lasting impact, but one other thing is the way that they presented the entrances and the promos. They started putting them, I don't know if it was on this show, they might have actually started this on the last show, um, but I noticed it here. Um, they started presenting them in letterbox format with uh, you know the black bars at the top and the bottom of the screen, and it gave it sort of a cinematic feel. It felt different than the, the production for the rest of the show, and I actually think... It was really high quality. Like it just, it just looked good. It looked different. You know, it gave. It just, it made. It, you know, it still felt kind of gritty, like an indie, but also slick. Um, and they, they stick with that all the way, probably through uh, early two thousand four. And I think it's a really good look. I think these shows look really good, even though, despite that, they're still in you know relatively crappy buildings. Um, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean by crappy. I'm not trying to knock yeah. the Murphy Rec Center, but you know, they're not high end uh, arenas for. Uh, shows that are supposed to be broadcast internationally um, or or mailed internationally. And then the other big thing, which it's almost like you don't even notice that it wasn't there until you get it, was the classic ROH sign guardrails, sheet metal that uh, lines up against the guardrails, which uh, make noise. And while the crowd is applauding and watching, they people in the front rows bang against the guardrails, which makes it ROH shows have a very distinct sound that no other promotion has. And ROH did not have them until this night. And so, like you said, it like hearing it again for the first time after, you know, after most ROH shows we've ever watched have, have had this, um, at least, you know, for in the 2000s they did. And hearing this for the first time doing the show, it like triggered something, right? Like a, a yeah. feeling of nostalgia and like, oh, right, this is ROH. And it's it's just – this show is just such a huge leap into becoming this major promotion that we watched for so many years. It's really noticeable and I think it enhanced my enjoyment of the show a lot. Uh, yeah. Uh, the one other thing – I mean you covered pretty much all the changes. I get, the one – thing I know noticed and you've mentioned this when we were talking about it earlier that I felt like this was the first show where they really lingered on a lot of the entrances more and you you were talking about you were telling me you know that will change from show to show based on time constraints they might you know but this felt like so many of the early shows you would see just a few seconds of the entrance and they would quickly cut and this felt like Ever since they've got they turned the building dark for a lot for the last couple of Philly shows and had the lasers and the lights and things like that, they were they're been more eager. It feels like to me to linger on the entrances and watch and like let the songs play out. Like, not that they weren't letting the songs play out, but like have you watch the guys come to the ring, things like that, or even entrances like uh, Specials K, so it has the preamble now. You know they they let you watch that before they come out. They don't just cut. And there was one downside to that I found on the show, which was there's because the lighting just goes absolutely pitch dark during a lot of these entrances and they hadn't yet really worked that out. There's like a lot of these entrances were for 20 or 10 to 20 seconds. You're just seeing nothing but darkness where and, and a few little lasers in the background. 
Yeah, yeah. Where I mean, it's clear that the wrestler's making his way to the ring, but there's no spotlight on them. There's no like selective lighting to light the area they're going to. It's just like, well, the lights are mostly off except for maybe a few lasers, like you said, and you can't see a thing. Which, so yeah, they're, they're definitely made a, a quantum leap forward in production. Still have some kinks to work out, but yeah, it was noticeable that they you know, just kept, they were changing again. They were, they kept trying to like tinker with the look of the product. Yeah. And most of it was a uh, success. Yes. Um, we opened the show proper with a backstage promo from homicide. Julius smokes at his side. Homicide says 10 years ago, there was no homicide, just a street gangster named D. He says he did everything. Every thug did. He robbed, he stealed, he got locked up in prison. And then Homicide says everything changed when he had his kid Nelson in 1996. He says in 94, he could have had a scholarship with the Miami Hurricanes, but he was so too into slaying dope with a gang. Now, he says today, he sacrifices for his kid. He wants Samoa Joe's title and says that do or die, he's not going to die. So I assume he's going to do. Homicide says he'll do anything to win the belt because he needs the money and he can't get a job because of all the scars on his head. So, so I thought this was a pretty good promo. Um, I was going to make a pun where he, you said he would do anything to win the title. Uh, I thought it'd be funny if they, if he accidentally said he would dye anything to win the title, his hair, <laughs> uh, your your t-shirts. Um, yeah, but uh, it's it's good. Like the you know, Homicide definitely has a distinct character. They made him very sympathetic. Um, Julius Smokes adds something to his act. I think sometimes he adds, sometimes he detracts, but um, I. I thought this was a good way to start the show. It gives stakes to the match. One thing I thought was interesting, I noticed this on on this promo, but also the commentary for the two or three shows prior, there was somewhere around in this time, they made a switch, at least for a little while, where they went from portraying homicide like they did in 2002, which is he's this crazy maniac from the streets, to he's this guy who's leaving the streets, who he does everything for his kid. Like on, I think there was the last message, the last Boston show we watched, you know, during that CM Punk match, I think Gabe was going over and over again, like he's doing it for his kid, you know, and even Homicide's promo here, you know, it's all centered around, he needs the money, he wants a better life for his kid and winning the title will get that for him. So I feel like at this point, they're trying to make him a much more sympathetic baby face. Right. And of course, in 2004, they'll kind of just go back to homicides crazy and unpredictable and dangerous, but yeah, I wonder how much of the backstory is true as far as like the parole thing. And the, I mean, obviously he has a kid, like, I don't think that's made up and I'm sure that he does want more money for the kid, but like, you know, just like, I wonder how much of this background is, is true. Like the 90, like the thing you mentioned in this promo, the, that he could have had a scholarship with the Miami hurricanes football team in 1994, I mean, that sounds specific enough. Maybe he's exaggerating, but you know, certainly it, it is. You know, that's the kind of stuff that, again, is probably missing in some of today's indie wrestling, where it's not just "I want this match," "I want this title," "I hate you because you interfered in my match." It's like, you know, he's referencing a backstory, like a life backstory, not a wrestling backstory. Yeah, like I'm a per- I'm a person, not just a wrestler. Yeah. And next we get people that are the opposite of people <laughs> because we get a special K party backstage and there's an on-screen graphic telling us that this is, quote, deranged are you his eye cam, which looks like a regular cam except it's showing us a party. And it has, and it has the, those words at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, 
<laughs> I, but I do like that. I do like that sentence. It's the same as a regular cam, except it's showing us a party. <laughs> um, Izzy doesn't think that the party is very fun, but Hydro has an idea to mess with the lights and turn the whole place into a rave. The camera follows them, the special case, they go to ringside and ask the lighting guy to mess with the lights, like starting to beg him. And the lighting guy is just like, uh, we're still setting up everything for the show, like come back later. And that's the whole segment. <laughs> that's the entire thing. It doesn't, I assume maybe it's paying off in that the spe- special K will have a rave two shows down the line. But like, that's the whole segment. They never get like a big party. The lighting guy never does anything for them. It's literally just them saying we're bored. Can we get the lighting guy to change the lights? The lighting guy being like, "No, I'm not doing it." <laughs> this is this is the slow burn, Trevor. This is a, a several lo- a several show long angle that's going to pay off big time. <laughs> yeah, this 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 is just like you know Anton Chekhov, where if you have a gun in the first act of a play, it's got to be fired in the third act. You know, Gabe always dropping these breadcrumbs with these huge rave related payoffs. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> First match. Jimmy Rave, Jimmy Rave debuts on the show tonight. So that's yes, the, actually that is the payoff. Actually, one other thing I should mention before we mention, we talk about the first match is this was the first do or die show, but this is the only do or die show that's like a proper main Ring of Honor show. Do or die shows in the future would become pre-show like showcase like events where they would have a card of show of matches of guys, you know, maybe a few ROH regulars, but mostly people that were very under-pushed or completely new wrestlers that hadn't worked there before. And Ring of Honor would eventually, like, release those shows as... I think they put two of them on one DVD, but they were never big sellers, they were never big cards, and they were never considered, like, main shows with a lot of storyline development. But it's, it's interesting in the sense that this was the first show, and they kind of tried to do a bit of that that conceit that they would do with little later shows where the first half of this card does have, well, actually the whole card because Jimmy Raven, Frankie Kazarian are in the second half, but they do have some guys making their debuts tonight or also guys that haven't been pushed that hard. But I guess maybe they didn't like the idea of doing this on a main show because they never do it as a main show gimmick again. Part of it is also the guys that they could not have on the show. Like, obviously, um, Brian Danielson is gone for a while. Paul London was not on the show. Uh, AJ Styles was not on the show. Amazing Red was not on the show. The SAT wasn't on the show. Um, well, obviously, Low Key was there, but, you know, was unable to wrestle. So, they, you know, they, they had a lot of spots to fill. So, it made sense to do this for this night. Yeah. Um, yeah so, the first match of the night is BJ Whitmer taking on Danny Moff with Allison Danger escorting him to the ring. And Danny Moff gets the win here in 9 minutes, 10 seconds, when he pinned Whitmer after he hits the burning hammer, thanks to some Allison Danger interference where Whitmer was going up top. Allison Danger did a really weak, uh, I think, back scrape. He falls on the turnbuckle. Moff hits the burning hammer. Um, Matt, this was, I think, Moff's first singles match as a member of the Prophecy what do you think about this as an opener for the show tonight? It was his sing- first singles match in ROH too, uh, I think. Oh right? yeah, yeah. And um, I, you know, I thought it was okay. I, I liked that it was a little bit different than the typical ROH opener because, you know, the usual ROH opener is uh, guys do either mat wrestling stuff or there's like a big uh, high flying spot fest. And in this case, it was like t- 
two bigger guys just throwing bombs, you know, head drops and stuff, which is, you know, not everyone's favorite type of match because it is like, you know, a little bit like video gamey and just like easy, like not easy, obviously, but, you know, kind <laughs> of not, not complicated, not complex, but... I think it was a nice change of pace. The crowd definitely got going for it because there were a lot of big moves, you know, suplex being blocked, lots of chops, um, you know, uh, all that stuff. Uh, obviously, the burning hammer. Um, but um, the big thing, uh, uh, another production change that we have not mentioned yet, CM Punk is on commentary, and, yes. along with Gabe, for half of the show. And he's not quite what he becomes, because I think... It, at certain points, CM Punk is probably the most entertaining commentator ROH during the Gabe era actually ever had. Um, he's working out some kinks here. Uh, he does, you know, he has his own misogynistic comments about Alice in Danger, calls her a sea hag at certain <laughs> points. Um, but he, um, but he definitely uh, brings some vibrancy to the product. Uh, he's brings some humor to the uh, to the announcing, and I think that also helped. Uh, one thing that was noteworthy in the match was the very first match with those new guardrails. Dad Moff badly cuts his hand on it, and he's bleeding all over the place from the uh, from the sheet metal. I think they changed that. Like they changed the 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 material that those are made of as they go on because these bent a little more easily. I think they these were thinner and sharper, and I think. Uh, you know, not too long after this, they get a little bit thicker and maybe made of a different material because you don't really notice guys cutting themselves on these visibly all the time over the next five years. So yeah. I think they, they, they work it out. But, I, you know, I felt bad for Dan Moth um, there. But um, as far as big spots, you know, it's, it's the typical stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, um, Half Nelson suplex, which I already mentioned. Um, Whitmer sort of does a uh, uh, fighting spirit thing where Moff hits one Half Nelson suplex. Whitmer fires up, so Moff hits a second one. BJ blocks a German. BJ goes to the top rope, and that's when Danger, you know, uh, crotches him, and uh, and Moff hits the uh, the burning hammer. But it's mostly just you know stiff chops and kicks and. And suplexes, and there's not much to it, but I thought it was solidly entertaining. Uh, I thought this was fine as a match. I was kind of disappointed by it in the sense that Moth and Whitmer are both clearly, at this point, guys Ring of Honor sees a, a lot in. They're both getting their own pushes starting around this time. And you would think that getting the opening spot on a show, both getting pushes to start, they'd really try and steal the show and really make do something. And this comes off as just like an average mid-card match. And you, you described it well. You know, mostly, you know, some suplexes, some some stiffness, but it's only, also only nine minutes. And, I mean, it's fine, but I just thought for, you know, you would think for them investing, they're really looking into these guys, that they would maybe be put in the position to produce a bit more and also produce a bit more. But, like, the match is fine. Um, I noticed B.J. Whitmer talking a lot during this match. Like, I could see him clearly, like, just not really making an attempt to hide him communicating to the other wrestler and the ref. Um, I thought it was interesting that, like, like you said, it's the first match with the guardrail, with the guardrail covers, the sheet metal, and... It's like they very quick, like the fans from right from match one are slapping on it. So like they very quickly are like, hey, this makes a cool noise. And the wrestlers seems like they're also very quickly realize, hey, 
we could do something cool with this because they both throw each other into the guardrails and I think that's where Moth cuts his hand. And yeah, I don't I don't know when the, the guardrails stop being sharp, but I know this is not the last time Ring of Honor wrestlers will cut themselves on these guardrails and I because I've heard wrestlers talk about how notorious these guardrails are. I believe in this year we'll have a Samoa Joe match where he cuts himself badly on one of these guardrails. So I guess it's just a matter if you get a, a sheet metal sign made fresh, it's if you don't sand the edges or you know something like that, it's going to be super sharp and yeah, just too sharp here. Um, just looking uh, on the bright side, Moff's uh, new prophecy outfit also looks very sharp. <laughs> did, did, uh, it looks. Uh, I was I was being sarcastic. <laughs> it looks okay. I mean, uh, um. Uh, it looks okay. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to now evaluate in my head what I think of Dan Moff's fashion choices and I mean it would look weird if he was walking down the street wearing that. <laughs> but it's for, still weird Yeah, go ahead. It's still weird to see him like Moff try and go like vaguely goth the way that the prophecy is vaguely goth because Dan Moff just doesn't seem like that kind of guy, you know? I don't know. You never know. He might really love I don't know, who would the the cure? I don't know. <laughs> He loves the song Bella Lugosi's Dead. Just plays that song all the time. <laughs> um, and going to what you said about, yeah, Matt made a, thank God Matt remembered. Well, I mean, I would have remembered, but we should, probably should have mentioned earlier. This is Punk's debut on commentary. He does do about half the show. Um, yeah, on Punk's commentary on this first show, he's not as good, I think, as he would become and I think when you listen to the show, what my I don't know how you felt about it, but my impression was there's a lot of Jesse Ventura in in Punk tonight. Like he's trying to do a lot of that. I'm the heel, and I'm kind of needling my broadcast partner, but I'm also trying to call the moves and educate you, the fans, and take this seriously. And like I think you told me once, like uh, you felt he was kind of maybe overstepping Gabe at points, actually. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely a lot of times where he was just like calling the moves, and it was like, well, that's not your job. But you know, neither of these guys were professional announcers, so that's going to happen sometimes. Just like how you know, neither of us know how to do a podcast, so we uh, (laughs) we mess up a lot of the time as well. Um, Yeah, but I think Jesse Ventura is a good a good pick because yeah, Jesse Ventura's big thing was always trying to see things from the heel side, like not just cover for the heels and be a bad guy, but like tried to honestly. Uh, see the logic in the heel's point of view. And I think Punk was doing a lot of that too. Yeah, I mean, it's the school, you know, there's two major schools of heel color commentary where you could the Jesse Ventura one where you're trying to have um, some credibility and you can have the Bobby Heenan vein where, you know, you're just this buffoon who's always looking stupid and always making incredibly like tenuous excuses for heel behavior. And they're both great in their own way, but Punk here is definitely like in this match, Gabe didn't know a certain suplex was an exploder, and Punk takes like delight in getting on Gabe and like that's an exploder, Gabe, you know, and it, it, Punk, Punk, Punk was, was a Punk was a smark, yeah. <laughs> Especially he goes over hooking my one my biggest pet peeve of him tonight was he cannot stop talking about wrestlers needing to hook the leg, and it got to a point where I was like, like just stop it it's getting distracting and it's a classic gorilla monsoon criticism too right that's a, that's a funny famous gorilla monsoon story where gorilla would always like criticize wrestlers for not hooking the leg 
but Vince McMahon actually said, "Don't ever hook the leg unless you're about to, unless it's the final cover." So it was like he was undermining wrestlers for doing what they were told. Um, and I think you know, Punk might have just learned, just like probably a lot of us growing up, learned to wrestling commentary from Gorilla Monsoon. So exactly, or something. It reminded me even something recent the uh, the New Japan show that happened in Long Beach the other weekend. You know, Jim Ross was getting on wrestlers over and over again about like, oh, I guess the ref just for, just has given up on tags and he would sound real grumpy about it and he would <laughs> always get mad when more than one wrestler in a tag team was in the ring at the same time. But like that's good to point out if it happens once a show, but when it becomes apparent to you that this is happening a lot on a show, at some point you're starting to actually like work against the show. Exactly. Like you just need to accept that, hey, in this baby, I don't like this. Maybe this is something I could talk with the promoter after the show. But in front of the camera, I shouldn't be pointing out things I think are flaws if they're happening 20 times a show. Because then it just becomes farcical. Like, it just becomes, like, I, I get distracted. I start going, well, geez, like, are you even enjoying watching this? But, yeah, all these wrestlers are idiots. That's my takeaway. Yeah, Punk didn't get to that level, but he definitely mentioned quite a few times when guys did not hook the leg. So, yeah, average match, perfectly fine. Maybe a little disappointing. After the match, Julius Smokes, he gets in the ring, and we get a pretty major, pretty big in-ring um, segment full of angles and interviews. Starts with Julius Smokes. The crowd is yapping. I, I can't do it. Loud in the ring. But, yeah. But he's like, oh, like that. He's quickly gotten over with the Philly crowd. He gets on – Smokes gets on the mic and says a lot of things I can't make out over the sound system. Well, he, he says – he, he says um, – he tells uh, Moth that he forgot where he came from and then he quotes Malcolm X. He goes, um, Plymouth Ro- – uh, we, uh, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. And, the, you know, <laughs> Punk and Gabe have no idea what he's talking about. Um, and, uh, and then uh, Julius Smokes – well, you could – I'm sure you'll, you can say the big moment. Yeah, um – Punk jokes about how they need subtitles for Smokes. Gabe and Punk can't really understand them. Um, in a nice little uh, angle, Smokes is holding the torn Hit Squad shirt that Moff tore off himself and threw on Homicide in a couple shows ago. So I thought that was a nice little touch for the angle that's about to start. Um, Smokes calls him the N-word. Yeah, m- m- yeah, Smokes calls him. Yeah, I- I'm bearing the lead here. Uh, Sm- Julius Smokes calls uh, Danny Moff the N-word. We're not going to use that word. And um, uh, Punk and Gabe are like, whoa. And Gabe's like, we're not going to repeat that word. So. But we are going to put it, put it on our DVD that we're selling. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't stop Julius Smokes. Yeah, and um, out comes low-key Arm in a Sling from the FWA Ring of Honor co-promoted show. Um Key gets on the mic, and Moth bails to the outside immediately. Key says Moth needed the help of a woman to prove he was a man. Ooh, sick burn, Key. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, no, all, this, um, all this sexism. We can't, we can't escape it. <laughs> uh, Punk's been needling his uh, friend, and I think uh, – no, oh, uh, I was just looking at a different point in my notes. But actually, this is a good time to mention. You were talking earlier, speaking of the sexism, of how hard like Punk was going on Alice in Danger on commentary. I think Punk was actually like Punk and Danger might have been former roommates. I I might yeah. be wrong about this, but but I it definitely is like sounds harsh until you realize he's probably doing this as like 
an in joke to really single her out. Yeah, like, yeah. I, calling her a sea hag and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I never took it as punk being like mean to danger. It was just it was a very sexist presentation. You know, yeah. like it's a you know like right after Loki says you need the help of a woman, which was sexist. Then punk goes, she's a woman, and that's doubly sexist. So, um. Key's also mad about Moff tearing off the Hit Squad shirt, and the crowd chants, you're a sellout at Dan Moff, so it's interest- It's nice to see that they're buying into this angle at this point. Uh, Key says one day it's going to be him versus Moff, and if, uh, if Moff chooses to wear the colors of the prophecy, may God help him, and that's the gospel. So Key using the prophecy's catchphrases against him. Uh, Key then moves on to a completely different topic of business, but as he's starting, smokes blaps right in his face, and the crowd's like, ooh, like the crowd's like, oh shit, you didn't, you did not just do that to Loki. Um, Loki gets mad. He he tells Smokes he's standing in a ring that's for athletes, not thugs. Key says the ring says Ring of Honor, not Thug Life. Smokes responds by doing the most amazing strut <laughs> I have seen in a while. <laughs> He doesn't say a word, just struts. He's, he's, he's happy to be a thug. I got to do um, that when people, when people insult me. I just got to just start – just ignore what they said and just start dazzlingly strutting. Yeah, it's hard to get, stay in an argument with somebody when they just strut. Yeah. Um, Key then says the streets don't belong in Ring of Honor and neither does Julius Smokes. Smokes takes off his shirt at this point and like he's going to you know throw fists with – key and i like this punk on commentary says you take your shirt off you gotta fight you can't back down and i just wrote my notes really that's how it works once you take off your shirt you can't avoid a fight like that's the point of no return going shirtless apparently apparently he apparently if he doesn't want to fight he's not going to take a shower (laughs) um homicide immediately runs to the ring at this point wearing a Hit Squad repeat offender shirt, which was, again, a nice little interesting touch here. Homicide tries to keep the peace between Key and Smokes. Uh, Key tosses off his arm sling in anger before saying that tonight is a very important night in the career of Homicide. Key says tonight's the night for Homicide to finally get the credit he deserves, but to do that, he needs to win the ROH title, and to do that, he needs to be free of distractions, and to do that, he needs to be free of Julius Smokes. Key leaves the ring with nothing settled as Smokes just keeps yelling at him. And as this is happening, Trent Acid, of all people, jumps in the ring from the crowd and blindsides Homicide with a Yakuza kick. Gabe quickly tells us on commentary that this is a feud that's taking place in another promotion, although he won't say the promotion by name. But he does say it's over the Big Japan title. Yeah, he says they're fighting over the Big Japan Junior Heavyweight title and that Homicide recently went to unnamed promotion and gave Acid a cop killer. Was it CZW oh. or JAPW? Do you know? Um, I did not look that up. I should have looked that up. That's the one piece of research I should have done. But I also thought it was interesting that he said cop killer because the very last show, you'll remember, Gabe says they weren't allowed to say cop kill anymore because Homicide's probation officer was watching the show. So apparently that's all good now. They've worked things out with the probation officer. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you can do it. Right, it's fine. <laughs> I, you know, I, I get the joke. Um, you know, we can be hard on you sometimes. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, that, that is. That basically ends the segment. Um, actually, Gabe is a huge fan of these segments where one thing like just immediately goes into another with no break. He likes 
he, he likes he, Gabe is a huge fan to this day of the one thing ebbs into another, one match ebbs into another, one promo ebbs into another, and I feel like he overuses it and does it without a lot of like grace a lot of the time. I felt like this was one of the best one of those he's, I've ever seen him do. Yeah, I felt like every like every um. Every like change, of, even except for maybe the Trent one, which was abrupt to people that were only watching Ring of Honor. But every other one, like it made sense that after the Moth match, Key would come out because he has a bone to pick with Dan Moth, and it made sense that you know while he's in the ring, you know he has a bone to pick with Julius Smokes, and or it made sense why Smokes came out first, and then it made sense why Key would come out. It made sense why Homicide would come out. Like he, they really do have all these interconnected little problems with each other. And they all made sense, and they all like it had a good reason to flow into each other. I felt, and it connected the opening match with the main event, which I always think is kind of cool, uh, even though you know the, the participants were not the same. And I, I so I wrote, you know, none of these guys are great promos, which is definitely true, but that was very good booking. Like this is like like they're really getting like like this is like where you could really see okay, Gabe is starting to get it as far as how to put a show together and how to put these long-term angles and make them pay off. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And uh, I agree that he is n- not a naturally good promo. I thought this was maybe his most effective promo we've seen in ring of honor thus far, because rather than just it being key doing his usual platitudes about this is about honor. I'm about honor two, one year ago today, like just all that <laughs> stuff. instead it's actually about something. Like, yeah, it's a very simple like this is my friend. I think you're holding him down. I wish you weren't here. Like it's actually uh, 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 for once he has something to say. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do a shtick where he like he 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 starts every sentence with the same phrase. You know, he just was like a person being mad about something and expressing himself. And that yeah, much better than his normal promos. Uh, yeah, so uh, I I thought this was really well done and. I think this is also, like, we're getting to a period in 2003, we're going to see it later on in the show, too. Gabe's really falling in love with the idea of wrestlers that have, like, multiple feuds going on at the same time. And that's been percolating the last few months, but, like, when you look at a guy like Homicide, he's, you know, he's got the Trent Acid feud that all of a sudden starts in Ring of Honor with his show. He's kind of ending his little two-match feud with Joe, which I guess you might not necessarily call a full-fledged feud, but... It's still, I guess, he's still got the Carino feud hanging in the background, and now he's got this, he's still in the middle of this low-key, and Julius Smokes are his friends, and he's caught in the middle storyline. So, all these different things, and we're going to see, like, with a guy like Christopher Daniels and Punk later, Gabe's really, he's identifying his top wrestlers, and he's not as shy of putting them, not in one feud, but, like, I'm going to have, like, two or three things going on with these guys all at once. Yeah. I think, um, and I think it's it can it can be effective sometimes. Yeah, sometimes we'll evaluate that through the years. Mm-hmm. And the next segment is we very quickly see clips of a Slugga and Hydro versus the Ring Crew match from a ROH Showcase event. Uh, nothing special here. There was actually apparently a few matches before the show started, according to Cage Match, that did not make tape at least on this show. Jimmy Cash defeated Lit, Lit from Special K. Diablo Santiago defeated Paul Enormous. Special K of Angel Dust, Cloudy, and Slugga beat the Ring Crew Express and Slick Wagner Brown. And Persephone beat Alexis Lurie in the rematch from the last show, which we will see clips of later. 
So, little four-match mini pre-show card. Yeah, I'm wondering if that was like. I mean, they say it's showcase show. I'm, I assumed like that wasn't like a separate ticket. Like I imagine that was just that was just the pre-show that they they always do, but a little yeah. bit longer. Yeah, I, I I think so. Um, and that brings us to match two, which is Tony Mamaluke defeating Jason Cross via submission in eight minutes fifty-eight seconds when he does a superplex into a he just rolls over into the guillotine like neck lock. And he only got this move after he shoved the ref into the rope, so a bit of a cheating victory. Um, this was a, another like a nine-minute match. I felt like I felt like Jason Cross really impressed me here. I felt like he was. It was a definitely a my turn, your turn match. And a Styles Clash, but I don't even mean that in a horrible way. Just in the way that, it, at least for the first few minutes, Mama Luke would do his technical wrestling, and then whenever Cross got in control, he would just try and do whatever big spots he could do to impress people. So it was, it, it felt like a not less of a match and more of like a my turn, your turn. But when you're when you're Jason Cross, like this is your chance to try and make a name for yourself in this company, and you only have nine minutes. So I don't blame him, and I thought. Oh, uh, I thought he was really entertaining in what he did. Yeah, when you're doing or dying in ROH in 2003, that's probably how you do it, right? You just hit all the big moves that you know. Um, there was definitely some unnecessary indie stuff in this. Um, like cross suplex Mamluk into the turnbuckle um, and then hit two brain busters in a row, like stuff like that. Then a third brain buster, um, shooting star leg, you know, just like all these big moves. One of the coolest things he did was like a flipping tamikaze you know you know what i'm talking about the the, yeah. the tam- i guess oh gosh i'm just i'm trying to think who in wwe did that move was that like the wasn't was, that the unprettier like yeah that was yeah, right you're right that was christian's move right the, so the for those who don't know yeah. the tamikaze yeah. just picture like christian's unprettier but imagine if the guy was already bent over and the guy doing the unprettier was like running behind them jumped and did a forward flip and landed in the unprettier yeah, I mean, that was a really crazy cool move. Um, I've noted a couple things. This is Mamaluke's first match back since the uh, Matt Thompson match. And we got to actually hear Gabe on commentary say Matt Thompson's name, which gave <laughs> me the fuzzies. Um, yeah, I, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Mamaluke did his Matt stuff. Um, uh, but Cross definitely was the standout here just because of all the big moves and stuff. Uh, one thing on commentary, I guess... Um, Jason Cross missed a shooting star leg drop, and Punk goes, oh, as the kids say these days, no water in the pool. And <laughs> pretty sure Punk was like 24 or 25 here. So that when he says the kids these days, it just makes me feel really old. I love that you take that as Punk being like tr- trying to act old beyond his years. I always took from that like – no one in like 2003. I do not remember that as the era when no water in the pool was hip slang. Like no, but I know. have heard ROH commentators say it before this show. I will say that. Like to me, that sounds like a 70s phrase or something. That that sounds like something I could picture Gordon Solway saying. You know, like no water in the pool for you know Buzz Sawyer and just. <laughs> but what moves are Buzz are Buzz Sawyer missing off the top rope? Uh, I think you would do like a splash or something off the top. I okay. think. Um. Yeah, I, I thought as like entertainment for a short match. I, I like this a little bit better than the first match, even though there might have been some overkill. But for nine minutes, like I don't expect that much when it's a guy's first match in the company. And 
it'll be Jason Cross's only match, which I don't know what happened. I feel like he deserves better. Like he deserved a second look after this match because he did do a bunch of cool eye candy spots. He's an he's, he's an he's an indie re- he's an indie wrestling heaven with um with Matt Thompson. Oh, <laughs> Matt Thompson! Like if you listen to this again, you have an open invitation to come on the show anytime you want, or just or just tweet me and tell me what's up. Yeah, just tweet Matt at Mayor MGF mm-hmm. on Twitter. Um, the the one thing I'll, I'll say about this match is Tony Mama Luke is a guy who so far, not that he's had a lot of great opportunities to strive his stuff, but his stock has fallen with me a bit based on my mem- compared to my memories. I feel like a lot of times his his technical wrestling doesn't really have a purpose to it. Like it's 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 a little bit dry. Some of his moves are cool, but Others are a little dry, and I'll talk more about my uh, philosophies on technical wrestling a little bit later. But he just—he never really focuses on anything. It's just like he's just doing it to do it. He just kind of spams that stuff. But at least here, it was only a f- first few minutes, and then they went to a more big moves type match that was just more v- viscerally uh, entertaining. But I, I agree with your criticisms of Tony Mamaluke, but I also would add that he is by far not the only one in this group crew of guys that do that sort of thing. No, we, and we will get into that a little bit later, but and I'm, I'm still interested in seeing more Tony Mamo because I, it's just my memories of him and maybe other matches will validate why my memories of him are like this. Like I remember him being more impressive than what he's shown in ring of honor thus far. Hmm. I don't, but I do remember that like in the era that he was most celebrated, which was probably like when he was in ECW and the tag team, he yeah. wasn't really known for the technical stuff. He was known for being a big bump taker. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he obviously tried to reinvent himself after ECW and I think it semi-worked and semi-did not. So next up, we get a backstage segment with uh, and one of our semi-frequent, but not that frequent, appearances of uh, Rob Feinstein, promoter at this time. He's telling the ga- the camera guy, who we can hear from his voice is Gabe, that he's got to get promos with Low Key, Christopher Daniels, guys like that to sell videotapes. Uh, he's telling Gabe, you know, make sure you get promos with that with those guys. And then Iceberg comes in. But we don't see Iceberg's uh, face at first. We just see him shot from the back. Very important. Um, Iceberg thanks Rob for the, for the opportunity. Rob gets very nervous and says, and I quote, No problem, Iceberg. It's a pleasure to have you here. Which I wrote on Twitter. I just love pro wrestling as a place where someone can honestly and like sincerely say, no problem, Iceberg. It's a pleasure to have you here. Like, what a weird sentence to have to say. Um, Rob keeps acting nervous. And then when Iceberg turns around, we see why, which is that Iceberg has put the letters, R-O- he spelled the letters R-O-H on his forehead with thumbtacks embedded in his head. That will definitely be the picture for this show. Um, oh, my God, that is pretty nuts. I, Iceberg walks away, and the Outcast Killers immediately come in, asking Rob why Iceberg is booked and not them. Rob says Iceberg is crazy, and if they want to tell him he's not booked, they should do it. He, Rob then gets the idea that if they want to earn a spot in Ring of Honor, they can wrestle Iceberg tonight, and if they survive, they can tell Iceberg that he's not booked in Ring of Honor again. I would love to know, like, yeah, if I were them, I'd be like, okay, sorry, wait, Ex- describe, explain survived a little more specifically, because, you know, that's a vague term. Because does it just literally just mean not die? Because if so, I mean, it's probably a pretty easy easy gig. And uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, not much to take away other than how crazy that that visual is, and also. If you look, I think it'll be in the picture. There's some great Rob Feinstein facial expressions, too, of just him, like, slack-jawed at Iceberg and his forehead full of thumbtacks. And that leads directly to Iceberg defeating Oman Tortuga via pinfall in three minutes, one second after he hits a big standing senton. Um, Dave Meltzer in The Observer said that Iceberg from NWA Wildside debuted in the ring and reportedly had the worst match in company history with fans chanting, don't, don't come back at him. Now it is true that fans did chant. Don't come back at Iceberg. Matt, do you agree that it was the worst match in ring of honor history that we've seen thus far? No, not even close. It was, it was an, it was a squash match. There was nothing, nothing about it to be that bad. Um, but yeah, I think, and also the crowd crapped on him before he had a good or bad match. You know, he was just like, oh, he's a big oaf, and, you know, we like um, strong wrestlemen here. So they, they crapped on him immediately. Not that he put in some impressive performance or anything either. Um, it, was just, it was just a crappy squash match. I thought it was interesting that he was introduced as one quarter ton, and then Gabe said he was over 600 pounds, which seems, I mean, he was a big guy, but 600 pounds, that's like you can't get out of bed size right like i i don't think it's possible that he could have been that heavy yeah i mean that's that's yokozuna in the indies like close to dying fat where where he just roll i mean it's not impossible i guess to be a wrestler that big but i mean that that's that's on the upper end i think of where you can even be remotely mobile yeah i mean you have to be you'd have to be as tall as the big show and i don't even know if the big show is like close to that like at his fattest you know um I'm actually not sure. Maybe I. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe, I, maybe I'm just I'm way off in what I think people weigh. Um, but uh, the most interest, the most entertaining stuff in the match was uh, them talking about Iceberg. Like Gabe said, the only thing I know about him is he's really into serial killers and he's a really odd guy. And he, he had like a Zodiac killer sign on his shirt. I mean, I don't know much about Iceberg. I know he's been around for a while. I don't know how, how much Iceberg have you seen. I've seen a little bit. He was a, I mean, he's been going for a long time. I think, I don't know if he's still wrestling or not. I know he used to be in a tag team with another big guy named Tank and they would wrestle in places like IWA Mid-South. Tank just retired like a year, like a few months ago at uh, the Scenic City Invitational of last year. I think Icebergs might still be going occasionally. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, for people who haven't seen Iceberg, he is basically like a sphere. He is a big, very round, very big person. And I thought in this match, I thought it was perfectly fine as a squash. Like, his clotheslines looked impactful. He hit a big fat guy senton, which he, the crowd even popped for despite themselves. Hit an air raid crash. <laughs> yeah, and a suplex into a DDT. Like, for three minutes of him just doing offense, I don't know if he could have done much more than that because I haven't seen that much iceberg. But, like, he accomplished the goal of doing a big fat guy squash fine. And I, I don't think he deserved the don't come back chance. I think that was solely because of how he looked. And yeah, Iceberg wouldn't come back. He was a part of that match, the uh, the homicide bunkhouse riot against with Dusty Rhodes. So this was his second and final appearance. And again, the segment kind of portrayed that Iceberg was um, almost not booked; that he was just there because they were scared to tell him not to show up. 
yeah, I, I, I felt bad for him. I, I, I just I feel like this is one of the instances of ROH crowds at this time being too negative about certain things. Like they like them deciding to get on somebody before they've really even seen them. Yeah, like it's like another ICP situation and Conan pull all these poor these poor guys. Um, but uh, but you know ROH had this uh, image and certain guys didn't fit the image and Iceberg's one of those guys. So I mean, I, obviously I feel bad for him, but not too too bad because I mean, he just didn't fit into what they were doing at this point. Uh, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say Iceberg was this huge lost opportunity for Ring of Honor, but I also don't think he shit the bed or as whoever told Dave like the worst match in company history. I I I, I could probably name three or four or five matches off the top of my head that I had like less enjoyment watching than this match yeah i mean there were a lot actually um yeah. and even, this isn't even the worst squash match in company history yeah so but then uh, there was some really entertaining stuff afterwards like um things that seem very inappropriate like punk saying that iceberg was quote slightly retarded which is <laughs> not okay even then not okay and um gabe after after diablo santiago comes in to check on iceberg and iceberg attacks him Iceberg pulls out like a spike and Gabe goes, he's got a pointy stick. <laughs> uh, I laughed out loud because like that was the best Gabe could come up with was a pointy stick. Like he could have said ice pick, which would have made sense with Iceberg. He could have said like a shiv. He says a pointy stick. And like, keep in mind, this is recorded after the show. He could have prepared this line. Yeah. He could have asked him what it was because I bet it wasn't a pointy stick. I bet like Iceberg did not go to a campground and find like a marshmallow <laughs> like piercing stick. I, I bet it was something else th- that was not a pointy stick, but that's what Gabe called it while trying to act like it was the scariest thing in the world. If we named our episodes and it wasn't so um, suggestive, I would I would um, lobby to call this episode a pointy stick. Yeah, this would definitely be a pointy stick. And again, the fact that we've gotten the ROH in uh, he's not I want to make clear, he's not wrestling with the thumbtacks in his head. That was just the segment before the match, but the fact that we got that visual, the nice senton and the pointy stick line, like Iceberg has some pretty good contributions to Ring of Honor in this one show. Like, I agree. And at the end, Ring Crew Express came in to make the save. So it was kind of nice all the Ring Crew guys being like a team. I thought it was, a, and then and Iceberg just left. He, they ran him off. The Ring Crew Express ran off Iceberg. So what yeah. does that say about them? They they came in. They like hit a couple moves on Iceberg. I think like some super kicks and stuff. And yeah, Iceberg leaves, and the, or they the Ring Crew Express dragged the Outcast Killers to safety. Which it's interesting that even they are getting a bit of storyline development. Where before they were doing this idea that almost kind of an antagonistic relationship between the two teams because the Killers are jealous that the Ring Crew Express are starting to like get a reaction and they're all from the ring crew. But, and so this idea that all of a sudden they're helping them now, I mean, again, little touches like that where at least it's not completely random. Yeah. I mean, it really, the guys who are regulars on the show, all are people like they're not just, they're not just randos. So I, um, you know, I appreciate that about his booking. It's sort of like the good parts of what Vince Russo would do. And I guess Paul Heyman too, probably more Heyman, but still. Uh, next on the show, we see clips of Persephone beating Laurie from the pre-show showcase. This is the only other clips from any of those matches we'll see on this show, but just looked like a match. I, I assume this is from Gabe must have appreciated that Laurie Persephone 
serviceable match they had on the last show that he perved out over because he did book an immediate rematch here for Philly. So he must have liked what he had seen to some degree. And next up, that leads us to, I think this is where we'll get to talk more about just the nature of technical wrestling because this is Tom Carter, the former the former Reckless Youth, taking on Matt Stryker. And Matt Stryker defeats Tom Carter via pinfall in 18 minutes, 28 seconds, when he counters an attempt at an inverted cloverleaf into a roll-up. Um, Dave's report, someone told Dave that this was the best match on the show. Matt, I'll let you talk about this first, but I'm not going to tip my hand. Did you agree that this was the best match on the show? I think you've tipped your hand. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. My hand's pretty heavy with this match. Yeah, I I, I definitely am going to assume that I liked it a lot more than you did. Definitely not the best match on the show, not even close. But there were things I appreciated about it. And I certainly, I have a feeling I could know what you don't like about it, um, which is... um, you know, a lot of aimless Matt stuff early. I, so here's here's how I saw the match. First of all, the early stuff, the crowd was really into it at the beginning. Like, they were ready to rock with this match. Um, they were surprisingly hot, like chanting for both guys. Dueling like, chants. This was like one of the early, one of the, fir- like the first or second match ever that had these dueling chants, and it was Matt Stryker against Tom Carter. Yeah. Um, they start with the, you know, the classic indie-style chain wrestling, reversals, all that stuff. And I have to admit, I know it's not cool to say, but I still enjoy that stuff. Like it's just something I get a I get a kick out of it. I think you know when when it's smooth like that, I like it. Um, it it's uh, on commentary like they're talking about like Gabe always has to bring illusions like CM Punk, you're an you're an honorable guy. You definitely have honor. You respect the code of honor, which as we've seen numerous times prior to this, like it's not really true. But um, regardless, they bring that up. So the mat wrestling continues and continues, and it goes on for too long. And and at a certain point, they lose the crowd. The crowd is very hot, and they start doing chin locks and all this stuff, and the crowd gets very quiet. And they're quiet for a while. They're not really reacting to a lot of stuff. Um, like, um, Stryker does a planter to the outside. Then Carter DDTs him on the apron, like just out of the blue, and the crowd doesn't really react to that at all. Um, uh, Carter's up top, and Stryker runs up and suplexes him off Kurt Angle style. The the crowd's not really uh, into that at that point. And this is when Punk leaves for commentary, and Ray Murrow, aka Doug Gentry, comes in to replace him. Um, then they do a forearm forearm exchange, and this like Stryker kind of hulks up, and suddenly like the crowd starts to get back into it. Like Carter hits a brainbuster, uh, then a frog splash gets two, and I really like the fact that. They lost the crowd, which is obviously not good, but they got them back. That's an impressive thing to do. Like when the crowd is hot for something and then you kill the crowd and then bring them back, obviously you'd rather not kill the crowd at all. That would be a better thing. But if you're going to do it, like know how to, knowing how to get them back, I think is, uh, is a pretty cool thing to have on your resume, even though you would have rather had them just the whole time. Um, but the crowd is back into it. They do a bunch of roll-ups and reversals and a double knockdown. And I and I, I'm you know I do think that you know that some of that early uh, that early mat wrestling was sort of just like time killing and stuff because um, this you know this third portion of the match sort of has nothing to do with it. It's just like a bunch of big moves, reversals. Striker rolls through a crucifix and hits a Death Valley driver, and that gets a really big pop for the near fall. 
Uh, he goes for a top rope DDT, but Carter reverses into an inverted DDT. But, but there's a big delayed cover, and it gets two, and there's a huge reaction to that two count. Um, then there's a, a, a dragon screw by, by Carter and into an inverted cloverleaf. As, and the crowd like, is like chanting, like tap, tap, tap. And Carter makes the, I mean, Stryker makes the rope. And the crowd is chanting for Carter there. And Carter goes for another inverted cloverleaf again, but Stryker rolls him up and gets the three. And um, Doug calls Stryker the king of the, uh, the king of the counters, um, which I wasn't, um, I, w- I hadn't noticed, but I guess they sort of are having Stryker win that way. Um, I was just impressed again. Like, I'm not saying it's good they lost the crowd. Obviously, they, they weren't doing something right. But it's good that they were able to get them back. I think that that's, that's a skill in and of itself. And uh, the, the, you know, the, the stretch down you know, near the end, it had good drama. The crowd was into it. It might have been indie-rific with some of the big moves. But I thought it turned into an entertaining match. And uh, I guess I think I, I think I have a feeling about why you may not have liked it that much. But it didn't really bother me that much because I was entertained. But certainly, certainly not the best match of the show or even close. See, um, you actually pretty much said like most of my points. You did like a great job of covering it. And actually, I probably tipped my hand uh, way too heavy because I actually think this match ended up all right. But I did really get frustrated with the first half of this match because what I'll say is kind of Trevor's law of technical wrestling is I really like technical wrestling. I, I, I'm not someone that frowns on technical wrestling. I like Matt wrestling, but, um, like I'm into some Tim, a bunch of Timothy, not all Timothy Thatcher, but someone like him who is super divisive for his Matt wrestling. I, I actually enjoy a lot of his matches, but my theory of technical wrestling is it's gotta be one of two things. It's either has to tell a story or it has to be very visually like appealing if it's like mindless and doesn't tell a story. Like it has to either be like a Zack Sabre Jr. where it's very innovative and he's getting weird counters out ev- everywhere. Or even like a Brian Danielson who often does have like real purpose behind his wrestling. He could just do it without purpose and I would enjoy watching it because everything is so snug and you know he's always got real good intensity so again, it either has to appeal like just on an eye candy level or tell a story. And to me, the the technical wrestling I saw here was neither. And, and I I appreciate what you said about how like it's good solid like mechanically, it, it's good solid technical wrestling. But I found like a lot of it was pretty basic. It you know they went from one um body part to the other they didn't really like focus on any one body part they just went back and forth they didn't really have one guy dominate the selling wasn't non-existent but it wasn't like super engaging or entertaining like there was nothing about it that hooked me and it was the first half of a match that went 18 and a half minutes and then i think what got me next after that is that i wrote my notes this was an 18 and a half minute match but almost felt like they I, – I felt like it's a match that should have been 10 minutes shorter. Yet watching it, it felt like it was missing – like someone cut out the middle of this match because not very long after they um, they do this half of the match of very like low-level low technical wrestling. I don't mean low-level in execution but just not like super like, oh, he's almost submitting teases. All of a sudden, it's like they flip a switch and they go from – 
kind of early match type stuff to the stuff you talked about where I think it was like three moves almost back to back to back where it was like the, the apron DDT, the dive, the big superplex and to go from just like the mat wrestling that they were doing to like giant bombs like that. It, it was jarring. Like it was, it was like they just flicked a switch and said, all right, we've done enough technical wrestling that we are classified as good technical wrestlers, and now we can do the match that's more like what everyone else is doing. And they just went right into it. And as you said, I think one of the most um, interesting parts of this match, and the thing that speaks for it a lot, is the crowd is surprisingly almost molten hot for them to start with. They get progressively quieter till it gets like eerily quiet for all the technical wrestling. And then when they hit those big moves in the middle, as you said, the crowd doesn't give them what they deserve, actually. Like... Those moves deserved more of a reaction. They were doing big, giant moves, and it was almost like they had to do so much stuff just to get them to buy back into it, which like they, they hurt themselves to the point where they were getting a reaction they didn't deserve because they were actually going at a pretty good clip after the first half of the match. But as you said, they then got the crowd back in by the end. So that is impressive because we have seen a lot of matches in wrestling where the crowd's not into it at first, and then by the end they're into it. I, I I don't know how many matches there are like this where the crowd is super hot. They kill the crowd and get it back all in the span of one match. So as you said, that's a pretty unique accomplishment. Yeah, not um, necessarily one that you want to have to do, but at least I mean, at least you did it. Yeah, like I, I for people who are interested, I mean, we'll give the contact information at the end of the show. But if you can think of any prominent examples of wrestlers who started a match super hot, killed their own, like, heat, and then brought them back, I'd like to know, because I, I can't think of, of really any off the top of my head. But if you watch this match, that's exactly what happened. Um, I, I thought the wrestling in the second half was good, enough that I, I would say the match is average on the whole. I just... I guess the other thing that bugged me was seeing the report that someone told Dave that it was the best match in the show. And Gabe, even at the commentary at the end of this match, says this is an emerging classic. Which is the and, thing that he happens to do too much a lot. Um, yeah. I think the biggest difference between my reaction and your reaction is just the way we feel about the technical wrestling stuff. And I know I'm in the minority on this. But I don't know. To me, it's wrestling. So if they're doing like wrestling moves and they execute them well, it doesn't bother me. Um, I, I do agree with you that it was abrupt, an abrupt switch to like – early match mat wrestling to like uh new japan like big move kick out like all of a sudden but i you know i just i do enjoy watching that kind of mat wrestling i i i you know it doesn't just have to be like zach saber or brian danielson like tom carter and matt striker do stuff that i think is visually appealing um you know it's nothing that it's going to change the world or anything but i find it enjoyable enough this just it's just my taste i guess and the two highlights to me, one you mentioned, which is they I think that moment where they really they get the crowd back into it. They might have gotten them into it before this, but this was what I really noticed was that sequence where Stryker goes for the Death Valley driver, Carter counters into a crucifix, and Stryker just rolls through and hits it. That got like a really big near fall. And again, that was when I really noticed like for a crowd that was dead quite a few minutes ago, you got them to get really invested again. Like so Again, it's an interesting match no matter how like you're going whether you're going to like it or not. I think it's interesting to watch just if you especially now that you've heard us talk about it, like if you have access to this match, just watch how they kill the crowd and get them back because that's really interesting. 
and the other spot I li- actually liked was I liked the end where um, I don't know if this was on purpose, but Carter puts Stryker in the inverted Texas Cloverleaf, and that's the move that uh, Chad Collier submitted um, Matt Stryker with twice. And then when he goes for it the second time, the inverted cloverleaf, Stryker counters it. So I have no idea if that was purposeful to play off, like that Collier has been dominating him with that move. But I like the idea that Stryker, like, learned, you know, he learned to counter it. It's like, you're not going to get me the second time. In fact, I'm going to beat you with it. So. Yeah. And it's. it's uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, you go on. It was int- It's just interesting because you see, like, this is like. These are two guys that really haven't been given a ton of character, although Carter certainly is about to get one in the next second we're going to talk about. But they basically get a real centerpiece match here. Like, and you can really tell what, Gabe, what Dave was talking about, about how Gabe was really high on Matt Stryker and, and Tom Carter in the sense like they, they give, like you said, almost 20 minutes. Um, so, you know, one of the biggest, one of the longest matches, one of the biggest centerpiece, uh, you know, segments of the entire card. So... You know, you, there's clearly big plans for these guys that don't necessarily materialize. But at this moment, you got to think that they're there. Yeah, I, I think when you – I wonder if it's also that Gabe just sees Stryker as his new tentacle guy and he thinks they need to have long matches. But, yeah, if you see what he's giving Stryker, it's like the two guys he's – and I, I think they're who – I mean, they mentioned Moth, but I think if you look at the two guys he's really looking to be his new, like, undercard wrestling workhorses, it's B.J. Whitmer and Matt Stryker. He's really got an eye for at this point. Yeah, but Matt, but Tom Carter, too. Like, if you watch this show, you'd be like, Tom Carter's about to get a really big push. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, he came in with, like, a rep. You know, he was, like, the king of the indies for years. Um, so it's not, like, the same thing as, like, Matt Stryker being an up-and-comer. But still... You know, you would not. You'd be surprised to know how little Tom Carter we get after this if you just watch this show. <laughs> we yeah, because that brings us to we get an in-ring promo immediately after the match from Tom Carter. What happens is he refuses to sh- shake Matt Stryker's hand, which is such a scandalous move that it brings out Gary Michael Capetta with a microphone to ask why he won't shake Stryker's hand. Carter says Stryker's win via a roll-up was cheap. He also calls Stryker boy. And he launches into this heel promo. He, uh, Stryker, I mean, um, Carter complains about being booked in a dumb four-way for his first debut, which is kind of like a meta commentary on Gabe's booking, maybe. Uh, he says that all the, quote, marks in the back, unquote, were influenced by his work as Reckless Youth. Uh, Carter promises all the marks, smart marks and workers, that just like the reinv- he reinvented junior wrestling as Reckless Youth, he's going to reinvent technical or purist style wrestling as Tom Carter. Carter challenges Stryker to a tap-out match on a future show. And Stryker gets on the mic at this point. He says Carter is right about his accolades, but he's wrong when it comes to his not following the code of honor. Stryker agrees to a tap-out match next month, on the condition that he shakes his hand right now. And this brings out Allison Danger to start kind of a show-long storyline where the prophecy is trying to recruit people, trying to get a new member. Allison Danger comes in the ring, interrupts all of this. She tells Tom Carter to not shake Stryker's hand and instead go to the back with her where Christopher Daniels is waiting. Carter takes it like a brief second and then just shakes um, Matt Stryker's hand. So the prophecy is rebuffed. We got a future match that I don't know if it actually happens. I don't think it does. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, like, like Matt was saying just a minute ago, giving like, not at this point, it's frequent on this show, but in general, not too frequent that a guy gets like an in-ring promo 
and they gave one to Carter here and like established kind of a heel character, built up a future match, gave him a bit of the rub of like the idea that the prophecy wanted him and he turns them down. So I liked it. I, I it's another one. I like all, all the in-ring promos on this show. I really liked, inc- including this one, which I would not have expected to like because again, these are guys that are not like legacy ROH guys. But I thought it was good stuff. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I thought Carter was surprisingly pretty good. Like, it's not an amazing promo, but he looked pretty comfortable for a guy that was just known for his wrestling. Like, he was yeah. comfortable doing like a just a regular heel promo and calling out people. He leaned a little bit he- he- too heavily on oh the marks in the back and the smart marks terminology. Yeah, honestly, calling guys workers was probably the thing that annoyed me the most because it's like, well, working means lying. Um, so what do they do? What is their job? But yeah, but. But yeah, you know, that was the era. Yeah, but I mean, his delivery was good. It was just a little bit too much of that late ECW Vince Russo type, like the marks and the workers and the boys and just like, oh yeah, okay. The boys in the um, back. Yeah. But I I, I liked it. And I I think what I liked about it too was having Alice in Danger interrupt. It adds an extra, it makes the, the world of Ring of Honor seem larger where not everyone's just in their tight little feud box. And it kind of, um... It puts over, like, the match. It, it puts over that Carter's turning down this opportunity because he wants this rematch so bad. And it's interesting in the sense that, like, Carter's a heel. But just because he's a heel doesn't mean he's just going to play nice with all the other heels. You know, he'll he'll call down the wrestlers in the back and he'll be cocky and he'll call down Stryker. But he's not going to join up with Daniels either. So I thought that was a nice little touch. And that brings us to the scramble match. This is probably the most, in terms of star power, the biggest scramble Ring of Honor had had up to this point. Um, Special K of Dixie and Izzy take on the Briscoes, take on the Carnage Crew, who take on the Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana. Punk and Cabana win this match in 11 minutes, 14 seconds, when Punk pins Izzy after he Pepsi plunges him onto Dixie and then just pins Izzy. Um... So about this match, this is another match that I thought was perfectly solid. I thought it was like a above average little match. I was a little bit disappointed just because there's a lot of guys in this match I really like. And I, I was really excited like, oh, you know, it's a scramble with Punk and Cabana and the Briscoes. And I like the, I like, I like everyone in this match, you know. And I, I guess what I, what I forgot about was... A lot of the, some of these guys aren't experienced at scramble matches or maybe aren't completely suited to them. Like I thought everyone did fine here, but when I think of scrambles, I'm thinking about like a sh- like a short little match where it's just skinny guys doing crazy flips and crazy daredevil spots. And there was some of this in this match, but a little less. And I, I guess that's understandable when you remember that most of these guys are like actual wrestlers who aren't just slotted in the spot monkey role on wrestling cards and they still tried to do like a typical scramble and it was solid like everything in here was a solidly worked match and it did have a few big spots but i guess i i I don't know what i was expecting i guess i was just expecting something a little bit different or more and it was just turned out to be a regular scramble match um matt what how do you think this ranks in terms of like the scrambles we've been seeing recently, which I think have been at a, like a decent level consistently for months and months now. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think like this match was not bad at all. It's not necessarily what you're looking for in this kind of match. It was a little bit more grounded and basic than what you would uh, what you would expect from an ROH scramble match. Like it started off with a lockup <laughs> between uh, <laughs> Cabana and um, between Cabana and uh, Jay Briscoe, which is you know right there like a. Uh, a weird thing. Uh, one interesting thing about the match, which ROH does not normally do, is they cut away from the match uh, early on uh, to Gary Michael Capetta backstage with Samoa Joe. And Samoa Joe tells, uh, tells Gary Michael Capetta that, oh, like, come here. You're going to see a really cool thing. I got a scoop for you. Follow me. Like, all excited and all happy. And Gary Michael Capetta follows him into a dressing room where Dan Moff is there, like, lacing up or taking off his boots. And Joe just knees him in the side of the face. And just like brutally, and Gary Michael Capetta says, "Holy shit!" And Joe was like, "And Joe was like, yeah, you, 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 what? You know, next time you, uh, you come after me, you know, you better watch your back, bitch, or something, you know, something like that." Yeah. And and Joe just leaves, and like with a smirk, and and GMC is like, "Oh, we're gonna get you. We're gonna get you a hospital." Really brutal knee to the face. So it was like kind of a a hot angle. It was interesting that yeah, they that, that they did cool it during thing. a match. Yeah. Yeah, like it's another example of them changing the format for this show with the more in-ring promos and like breaking at the start of the match. Yeah, I completely missed that. I I thought the thing that was great about that too was, um, as you mentioned, Joe's got like really excited, like, oh, you want to get a scoop? Like he's almost gleeful. Gleeful, yeah. That's the word. And and then Capetta like inherits that feeling. Like he gets excited too. Like Capetta's so excited. Like, oh, I'm going to get a scoop. And then like it's just so funny. It's almost like the old mutton Jeff cartoons or something where he's just like following John, like, Oh boy, Oh boy. And then the best night of Capetta's acting. Cause then when later, when um moments later, when Joe's kneeing moth, you hear Capetta, like just go, Oh shit. Like it's just, I'm not used to Gary Michael Capetta going, Oh shit. But it was the most expressive Gary Michael Capetta ever was. I just had to get that in. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, as far as the, um, the scramble, um, I'd say what it lacks in big spots, it adds some good character stuff. This is really this show is really a big coming out party for CM Punk, and it starts here. Um, you know, especially with the post match promo. But there's stuff like um, you know, Izzy telling Punk to smoke weed, so Punk clotheslines him. Um, there's actually some cool spots like um, so Cabana has Izzy on his shoulders, and Punk goes for like a top rope drop kick, like Doomsday Device drop kick almost. But Izzy. Like reverse Rana's Cabana while Punk is going for the dropkick. So Punk, so Punk hits the dropkick and then Izzy does the reverse Rana, and yeah, that it's like gets Izzy takes the momentum of getting hit and just falls into the reverse Rana. And the crowd really loves that. And I thought it was really cool too. Yeah, um, coolest spot of the match. Yeah, for sure. Then there's a double team neckbreaker by the Carnage Crew on Izzy and the Briscoes and the Carnage Crew take each other out with big moves. And the crowd's really into the Briscoes, and there's lots of head-dropping suplexes. And the Carnage go for a spike pile driver on Izzy, but Dizzy breaks it up, and Izzy hits a top rope Rana on DeVito. Um, and by the way, this is the first time, I think, in a long time that Izzy and Dixie have teamed up, and they were like the original Special K team, kind of. Yeah. A- and um, they were, they've kind of not been around as much lately, and I think now they're going to be back more often and be more of the focus. But um, Mark does this, like running flip dive over the top and gets a big pop. Then they do, you know, DeVito hits the top rope moonsault. Um, Cabana hits the Colt 45 on Dixie. And then Punk Pepsi plunges Izzy onto Dixie. And then that's how the Second City States win. Um, 
So good, it's pretty good character work, and I think that's really will um, get elevated when we get to this post-match promo, which is a fairly major promo in CM Punk's ROH career. Yeah, before we get into that, I guess the other couple things, I just quickly looking at my notes. First off, those dives you just mentioned that Mark Briscoe and DeVito did, like the guardrails looked very close, like too close to the ring, and I think they both either hit the guardrail or came very close to hitting the guardrail. It was a little bit scary. And Punk and Izzy did a lot of, like, a bunch of spots together, like the clothesline smoke weed offer spot, the doomsday device spot. But there was a couple they botched pretty bad. There was one where Punk does the uh, the flipping the guy into the backbreaker. I forget the name of that move. There's a more official name. But, like, he just completely misses the backbreaker part. So Izzy just lands on his back. And then later there's a moment where Izzy and Dixie have their backs to Punk and Cabana who are up on the top rope and Punk and Cabana both hit big like top rope moves except um, – no, it's the opposite. It's, it's Sorry, it's Izzy and Dixie on the top and Punk and Cabana have their backs to Izzy and Dixie. And Izzy and Dixie are going to come off. They're going to hit Punk and Cabana with big top rope moves. Izzy actually appears to slip and fall way short of Punk. But because Punk's back is to Izzy, he just bumps anyway. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. If, if you go back and watch it, like he comes nowhere close to Punk, but Punk still bumps because he just, you know, he probably sees out the corner of his eyes that Colt's bumping. And he goes like, oh, shit, you know, I, I must be have gotten hit with something. Right. And he, he bumps. So I, when I was looking at my notes, I was like that doomsday spot device spot where the clothesline goes into the reverse round. I felt like that was, uh, that redeemed some of the, the iffy stuff Izzy and Punk had, but overall solid scramble match of, uh, you know, like above average as a wrestling match. And which is kind of where these scrambles for me in the last few months have been hitting, which is like, they're not amazing, but they're like consistently enjoyable. And even if I was hoping for a bit more and wished made the Briscoes had something more meaningful on the show, Still enjoyable. Yeah, good, good, drunk, good junk food. Yeah, that's a perfect way to, to say it. And after the match, Punk gets on the mic, and we get this promo Matt alluded to, where Punk he uh, first off he shakes Special K's hands as they still lie like defeated and out of it on the mat, and he tells them that Straight Edge means he's better than them, which is one of his big catchphrases of the time. Punk goes on to say he thinks he used to be alone, but he sees some people in the crowd in Philly that are like him. He asks those in the crowd that are like him to throw up the X. He praises the ones that do. Um, I, I felt it was a little weird that Punk – this was almost – parts of this promo were kind of like Punk trying to be a face to like a minority of the crowd, which yeah, considering but- how hard he's going heel at other points, I felt was a little weird. Like he, he was trying to be a face to the people that agreed with him. That was one of the big points of this promo. Yes. Um, I'll say this though. He gets the crowd to really turn on him. Like you, like you, oh, yeah. yeah. You can criticize that, but it, you can't say that he wasn't effectively turning himself heel to these crowd because they hate him. And I was actually shocked by how much they took to him as a heel because I would think you know he's such a talented guy, and this is like a you know a smarky crowd that they would really immediately get behind him as a babyface. But no, they they bought in. Like they, this crowd was booing him hardcore. When the when the scramble match started before Punk had a promo tonight, like the first appearance of Punk to the live crowd, they hate him. Like surprisingly, I wrote down like loud heel reaction for Punk at the start of the scramble, which you would think, you know, he would have the benefit of he's starting to get hot on the indies in general at this point. You know, that maybe he'd just get the, oh, you're a name reaction. But no, like they like to attest to what you were saying, they hate his guts. 
And yeah, which is, I mean, testament to him. Yeah. And so going back to the promo, Punk then calls um, down drug users. And when he mentions weed, that gets a big pop for the crowd. So Punk plays on that. He asks the crowd, who here does weed? Uh, apparently, Gabe was right. He's talking about how Ring of Honor fans always like to smoke a bowl and watch <laughs> the tapes. Because that got a big pop when G- Punk asked who in this Philly crowd smoked weed. Um Punk talks about the people who didn't pop for weed being his soldiers. Punk gets into it with Hat Guy, the famous ECW fan that showed up at early Ring of Honor shows. He tells Hat Guy that maybe he's a factory worker or a housewife. Ooh, sick burn. More misogyny from Punk. <laughs> yep. um, Punk plugs his next match coming up with Raven, and he says his revolution will destroy Raven's. Punk says he's going to tell us why he hates Raven, and he starts to mention his dad, so teasing a big revelation that will come on a future show. But Colt then grabs the mic and interrupts him, and he says he knows what to call Punk's revolution, the Cabana Boats. Um, Lucy likes it, and Punk obviously does not like that suggestion. (laughs) Colt asks Lucy to be his girlfriend out of nowhere, which seems pretty abrupt, and she says no. She says something I can't quite hear. Did you hear what Lucy said at that point after she tells Colt she didn't want to be his girlfriend? Oh, yes, I did. What did uh, she say? Um, so Colt says, why? She pauses, and then she screams, because I like to munch carpet! Oh, my God. And I, think the cra- I honestly did not make that up. I was not doing <laughs> that, Matt, to force you to say that. But yes. And it I'm w- glad you have good hearing. It was, in fact, in case you didn't understand me just then, she says that she likes to munch carpet. Um yeah. Which is, you know, very mature and a uh, very uh, mature way to handle that whole situation. Um, And I think the crowd doesn't really react to it because they probably didn't totally understand what she said either. Yeah. Um, So it is what it is. Um, But uh, not the best part of that promo, but the other parts (laughs) Um, were good. Yeah, Colt gets bummed. Punk says his catchphrase is, I am straight edge, blah, blah, blah. And then at, at the end, Colt's music starts up, and the segment basically ends with Colt. We can hear Colt off mic asking, I mean, Punk asking Colt off mic, what is with this fucking music? So just keeping up that that storyline of, you know, Punk and Cabana are together and Punk's stable, but Colt is so goofy and Punk just can't take it. But, yeah, I mean... He also, I tell, he also tells the crowd, the funniest thing I said to the crowd is like, he, well, one thing is Punk says that he uh, he's the voice of the voiceless. I, I like that because, you know, that's a, one of his major catchphrases years later when he's a mega million-dollar drawing star. So I, I just I just – it was cool to hear that, you know, all the way back in the indies. Yeah, I, I thought this was a solid promo. I think I've heard better from Punk, but I think it is an interesting promo in the sense that it is like – the first few Ring of Honor shows, Punk's kind of a baby face, and even Punk has said he didn't feel comfortable playing a baby face. And then he takes a super hard, abrupt turn to become a heel for the Raven feud. And this is, I think, more Punk kind of finding where he wants to be with this promo, which is, yeah, he's a heel, but he's a heel that's, you know, he's the cool heel. He's the heel that's like, I hate most of you, but if you kind of see my worldview, you're you're, you're okay with me. This is like a mission. This is a mission statement promo, like the character defining promo. So that's why I think it's a pretty major one for him. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that first one of like, you know, I'm straight edge, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hate all of you. I just hate everyone that isn't straight edge, basically. Right. And so yeah, that that's an interesting line to draw, and it's yeah, this is the promo at least in Ring of Honor where he draws that line. Um. 
Next, we're at intermission, and Capetta is backstage with B.J. Whitmer. Gary says that Whitmer has had bad luck in Ring of Honor lately and goes over his recent losses to CM Punk and Dan Moth tonight. Whitmer says he'll get back in the ring with Punk and get a conclusive finish. He's complaining about the interference that he suffered tonight when Christopher Daniels walks in. Daniels tells Capetta that Moff's at the hospital from the knee from Samoa Joe and that Moff's jaw might be dislocated. BGA wants to know what's up with the interference from the prophecy, and Daniel says that he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and maybe one day when Whitmer's luck changes, he can join the prophecy. Then uh, Daniels tells Capetta that he has a message for Samoa Joe and challenges Joe to a fight tonight, not a match, but a fight in an empty arena after the show when the fans have gone home. This is going to turn out to be something that's hyped on commentary and in pretty disappointing. Yeah, that's for sure. Because Gabe even like will hype it later on commentary, like I know you all want to fast forward right to the end of the show, but don't like keep watching, like trying to sell like this empty arena brawl between Joe and Daniel. This is going to be like a major Memphis level empty arena brawl, which it won't be. Spoiler. Um. After that, we get a match. Andy Anderson debuting, taking on the also debuting John Walters, and Andy Anderson defeats John Walters via pinfall in 6 minutes 45 seconds when he hits a spinning crucifix powerbomb. Andy Anderson uh, came from IWA Puerto Rico. I think he also, I forget where else he might have worked, but um, Dave says from the live reports that Andy Anderson of IWA Puerto Rico debuted and didn't look either good or bad. <laughs> that's that's a hell of a comment. Um, Matt, do you think this match was neither good nor bad? Um, it was closer to bad, but I wouldn't quite say it was bad um, in the sense that there was just nothing to it at all. Um, Andy Anderson, I would say, is at best, right? You might agree. At best, the second best Anderson whose name starts with an A. Um <laughs> And uh, John Walters, obviously, this is his debut, um, but long before we knew how much he hated immigrants. And <laughs> he um, he becomes a staple in ROH, like a major push guy. Well, not a major, but a relatively push guy in the company for a couple of years. So that's also interesting. Um, but there's nothing to this match at all. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's, very sh- it's a very shortened version of that, you know, fast-paced mat wrestling. Then... Um, you know, then just like goes into some big moves like Walters. He does like a springboard powerbomb almost. Like I don't even know how to explain. I guess it's like like up like off the ropes. Um, it's uh, he misses a splash. Anderson hits like this long delayed splash mountain powerbomb, which is kind of cool. And Walters escapes the second one, hits that lung blower off the middle rope, which the crowd didn't react to, which I was surprised by because to me that move is always like a ooh kind of looking move. But the crowd didn't react at all. Then he hits uh, the over-the-shoulder DDT for two. Um, they exchange forearms, which seems to be a prerequisite in these kinds of matches. Either forearms, chops, or slaps. Um, Anderson does a spin move, aka like Oz's finisher. Like so, like the, I guess that's like the you said spinning power bomb. But I remember it mainly as like, does anyone do that besides Oz? Where you get on? I don't know. Yeah. Like that's how I recognize that move, and that's how Anderson won the match. It was there was really not much to it. It was just a bunch of moves. It was very short. Um, one highlight is that Punk popped in on commentary to brag about his win, but he says that the revolution has just begun. And Gabe announces that Whitmer and Raven are going to go against Punk and Cabana at the next show in Boston, and that's probably the most memorable thing about the match. 
Yeah, I, I actually felt a little bad because when Punk came back on commentary, because you know the the thing was it was supposed to be, you know, halfway through the the match before the scramble, Punk left commentary. But then since they're talking about the last match and Punk's obviously in the studio where they're recording post production commentary for this, Punk comes back in for a minute or two, and I felt kind of bad like. Walters and Anderson only have six minutes, and here, like, Punk comes in, so they're not even talking about them for, like, one or two of their six minutes. And I was like, you poor guys. Like, Punk is big poochie. <laughs> does, anyone get, does, does anyone get that reference? Whenever, whenever Punk's not on, on Do or Die, the rest of the wrestlers always have to be saying, what's happening with CM Punk? What's CM Punk doing? Like, yeah, that's, that's actually part of the show did feel like this. Like, if you like CM Punk, between his two matches, his in-ring promo, and his commentary for half the show, like, this is Punkapalooza on this show. And spoiler alert, I do like CM Punk. <laughs> um, yeah, I-, I thought this was fine. Like, this was a perfectly average... I mean, there's only so good a match that's six minutes that's, like, basically a tryout for two guys can be. They all, most, Almost all these matches become the same thing because I feel like whenever wrestlers get this short on time and it's their first match in a company, especially on the indies with where you have like this expectation of really exciting and innovative, you get what this is, which is just guys going out hard and trying to hit like big spots over and over again. There's, there's not much to it, but they're they're trying. I guess one thing I noticed watching this match is I feel like this is the point where I'm starting to notice the Philly crowd's getting to be a little bit tougher, like, nut to crack in the sense of, I feel like in the first few shows, you could be almost any wrestler, and they would at least give you, like, a chance, where on a match like this, yeah, it's two unknowns, but I feel like like you were talking about, like, the, the back cracker, you know, or the long blower, d- you know, didn't get a reaction. I feel like that's a difference from maybe what we would have seen in 2002. I feel like now the crowd is a bit more into stars and maybe because they've seen so much ring of honor you know philly being the home base they are a bit more fussy and a bit more like you have to really if we don't know you you have to prove why we should give you a reaction yeah i think it's a little sorry i think it's exactly it guys became stars and they're like okay these are our guys and if you want to break into this crew like you gotta you gotta impress us now we're the gatekeepers whereas before they were just like we're gonna do this new thing where we love and appreciate wrestling uh, including when it's like just uh, gay bashing, and now it's like um, now it's like okay, well we have our guys, and you're not them, so show us what you got. Yeah, it's almost like if you ever try a foreign food for the first time, the first time you're like it's all new to you, so you're trying like eight different things, and you're open to everything, and then the second or third time you're like, well these are the two dishes I really like, and you're you're hesitant to try things new now because you're like, well I've kind of I know these are good. Like I feel like that's a good just, that's a good analogy. Yeah, like Ring of Honor, it was it was you know such an open thing at first. You were just forced to be open minded and and like interested in, in trying everything. And now we, the company actually has enough of a history now where the fans have ownership, like you said, and they're gonna they're gonna be fussy and hard on certain guys if they don't know them. So not that this match deserved a ton of accolades, but. Maybe a little hard on these guys. Yeah, maybe, maybe, int- maybe a single accolade. Yeah. A single camel clutch. And uh, it is a little sad that, well, not sad, but interesting that 
Andy Anderson is the one that wins the match, and he's the one that doesn't really do anything in Ring of Honor. It's going to be John Walters, as you mentioned, who gets gets the push and actually gets to hold a Ring of Honor title, not the title, but a title in the future. So. And becomes and becomes a national media celebrity for a very brief period of time. <laughs> um, our next match is a four-way. Christopher Daniels taking on CM Punk, taking on the debuting Frankie Kazarian, taking on the debuting Jimmy Rave, although I will note Jimmy Rave had a match that was taped for ROH TV in 2002 against AJ Styles. It was like one of those matches they would tape before the show that would just be exclusive to the TV show. But this is his main show. Like if you were just like us, just watching the VHS tapes or DVDs, this would be the first like full Jimmy Rave match ever on a like a proper Ring of Honor card. And Christopher Daniels wins when he in 20 minutes, 14 seconds, when he pins Frankie Kazarian after he hits the last rights on him. Matt, this is a punk second match of the night and a big four way. So, uh, what did you think about this? Um, I thought this match had a lot of elements that were good. I, I thought the downside was that I, I wasn't always the most exciting match. Um, but, um, one thing we do get is the, uh, they actually do say that Lucy is Lucifer. <laughs> so that, that name does actually get, to uh, appear on an ROH show, uh, which I did not remember. So good on Justin Shapiro for pointing that out. Um, <laughs> Kazarian comes out too, You're the Best Around, which is, do you remember what other ROH uh, act used that as their theme music? Oh, no, God, I, I should know. It's, what is it? It was Drake and Tobin, the Boogie Knights. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Boogie Knights. That would be like a great extra hard, like, ROH Trivial Pursuit question. Like, to name two acts that came out to You're the Best Around in yeah. early Ring of Honor. I think you could even give them the Frankie Kazarian one and just be like, name the other act in Ring of Honor history that came out with that. Because that's, even if you give them Kazarian, I think it's still super tough. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so the way they sell it is because this is like because Punk and, uh, and Daniels are both in the top five. That Gabe says that Rave or Kazarian could crack the top five rankings on their first match just by winning. Um, but so there's uh, there's they're they're kind of they kind of go slow at first. Um, Punk, uh, Rave, and um, and Kazarian. But when Daniels is in, he's just like wailing away aggressively, and Kaz is back, and that kind of picks up the pace. And they do a lot of these quick tags early. Um, there's a double crossbody block by Rave and Kaz, and they both tag out, and that leads to Punk versus Daniels. And whenever that happens, the crowd is really into it, and they're on Daniels' side completely. Like Punk is the heel, and they do a CM sucks dick chant like. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah. So there's just a lot of that counter-wrestling um, to a stalemate by both guys. Punk smacks uh, Daniels' head while he has him in a grounded hammerlock, which I think, you know, it's, those are always little nice touches. Um, Daniels pretends to be out of it, but then he drop toe holds uh, Punk into the corner. Raven tags himself in and knocks both guys to the floor and hits a crossbody to the floor on both. Kazarian hits a Pescado, too. And then Punk does a delayed brain buster on Rave. And at this point, I noticed, it seems like every vertical suplex in ROH is actually just a brain buster. Did you notice that? Like, they don't just, they don't, they, they never drop a guy on their back. They always just hit a brain buster. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, I, I didn't notice it until you said that, but this, you probably are right, especially because, wasn't it like the Mama Luke match tonight where there's like the three brain like the, Yeah, the three amigos brain busters, yeah. Y- yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, this was pretty crazy on that. 
Yeah, and Brain Busters, you know, like, that's a big head-dropping move. You'd think that would be a bigger spot. But anyway, um, they're still doing the quick tags, and the early phase of the match lasts for a while without too much of a storyline. Like, they're just kind of coming in and out. You know, there's tension with Punk and Daniels, but um, Punk comes in, and Rave... um, and Rave catches him with a big running knee, which the announcers misidentify as a Shining Wizard because there's no, like, jump up. Like, that's just Rave has, does that running knee, you know, all the time. Yeah. And it's you know, the guy's just sitting on the mat. It's, there's no, they're not kneeling. There's no, like, jump up to the knee. But, you know, I guess everything's a Shining Wizard in 2003, um, <laughs> except for the Shimmering Warlock. Um, <laughs> Rave takes the down... The Glimmering Warlock. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. No, it's okay. Um, understand that's also an indie wrestling trivial pursuit answer that's so, right that's true that. um, so Rave takes down everyone with forearms and Punk goes for like a tilt-a-whirl but Rave turns it into a cross face and which the crowd pops for because little did they know that that is one of Rave's signature spots as well um, and then you know Rave uh, and then um, Rave back suplexes Kaz with a bridge for two um, Daniel sets up for a superplex on Rave to the floor. Which, but, you know, I think whenever you see that happening, you know that's not going to happen. Um, but so he ends up knocking Rave off, and then Punk superplexes Daniels into the ring. And Punk hit, hits the Welcome to Chicago backbreaker. Then Danger trips Punk, but Lucy trips Daniels. And this is where they get your our big ECW tribute spot, where Danger and Lucy are... Are about are going at it on the mat, and the wrestlers pull them off aggressively by the hair. Um, I don't know how much you want to count that as our uh, Matt. I I designate you as our official. Is this man on woman violence um, referee? So I, I, I would say I would say yes. They don't need to ever do anything like this, where a guy is yeah. like grabbing a woman's hair and pulling her. I, I think it counts. I mean, uh, like again, as I mentioned another time, if you saw this happening in real life, would you consider it violence? Yeah, and it is not just – it's the demeaning kind of thing of like, you know, they're Punk and Daniel's um, seconds that come to the ring because that's ma- the main role women have in Ring of Honor at this point. And the fact that like Punk and uh, Cole – I mean Daniel's pull their women – their respective women off by the hair, it it's not just like in man-on-woman violence, but it's also that kind of just demeaning like – well, we got to get our crazy women off of each other thing. Like, you would never see men do a similar spot. Like, oh, we got to pull our men off by the hair. Like, you would just let them fight. Yeah, but, yeah, right, exactly. So, yeah, so I count it. Okay, um, so we're, the streak continues then. Yes, the streak continues. Um, Punk backdrops out of the angel's wings. Daniels blocks an actual shining wizard. Uh, Kazarian in, and he super kicks Punk for two. There's a springboard leg drop by Kaz for two on Punk. Punk hits, like, an, an arm hook, you know, like, behind the back DDT on Kaz for two. Rave Big breaks up a Pepsi plunge on, on Kazarian. Uh, Kazarian, I've been calling him Kaz because I wrote that for sure, because he does go by Kaz at one point later in his career. But um, uh, Kazarian hits the uh, Novocaine, which is the Sister Abigail, um, on Rave, but Daniels breaks it up. Uh, Kazarian then hits an Ocean Cyclone suplex for two, which still looks really cool. Um, not, not a movie you see very often. Uh, Daniels hits the STO, and the crowd is still rooting for him. Um, so there's a series of reversals, and Daniels hits the last rights on Kazarian for the win, because uh, and Punk can't break it up in time. I thought that there was a lack of crowd heat here, um, da- but Daniels did look very good. I thought, and I obviously Rave impressed because he becomes a regular here. Um, but I didn't think it was the match was really that good. I think it actually almost sounds more entertaining in descriptions than it was watching it because I thought a lot of the moves did not get the heat I would have expected. And, you know, I never need that whole, like, you know, catfight, catfight, let's pull them off by their hair stuff. But, you know, 
it was it was it was fine. It was pretty good, but I don't think it stood out as one of these kinds of like f- uh, four way survival matches that ROH does. I probably actually enjoy this a little bit more than you. I thought it was just a little bit above average. I thought it was like I thought it was a match with n- no real lows, but no real big highs either. I think it was just like like a morphine drip of like consistently competent. I almost probably felt like about this entire match the way you felt about the first half of uh, Tom Carter versus Matt Stryker, where it's like it wasn't super in- exciting or engaging. It didn't really go anywhere special, but it was just like competently done, and I enjoyed it for th- for that, but like never loved it. I agree with that. The thing that bugged me about this match, I would say, is the end where – the last three minutes of this match, uh, Daniels and Kazarian basically have a mini match against each other. It was the last two or three minutes. It's just them on, on their own. And when Daniels picks up the win, like Punk finally gets back in the ring, but he's just like a second too late to break it up. The thing I thought was a little weird about that is this was a four way where everyone was coming out very quickly, like new partner, new guys in the ring every few moments. It was at, at, at least once it got to a certain point. And you're going to have the two guys in the ring for like two or three minutes at the end and no one coming in. Like you should make sure those other two guys were taken out with big moves and they really weren't. Like I went back. I don't think they were either guy was taken out with anything like punk or rave was taken out with anything that would really justify why all of a sudden instead of like going in the ring every 20 seconds, they like take a powder for the entire last two or three minutes it was just one of those things where it was like well either they're taken it, out by big moves or they're distracted by how much they're fighting with each other and neither yeah. of those things happened yeah it, it, it would just was you know it's one of those things that makes you break your suspension of disbelief where it's like they're just waiting on the outside because obviously they want to end the match with like a couple minutes of Daniels and kazarian kazarian like wrestling and it was kind of neat to see when you re- realize oh like these two are becoming a tag team in Ring of Honor like years and years and years later and TNA. So that it was kind of interesting to see them duke it out even now. Um, I thought everyone looked fine. I thought Jimmy Rave was tr- trying real hard. Um, the thing, One thing that's, that I, I do think is good about these matches, even though I've been on the record before about not being a huge fan of these random four ways, uh. I do think one thing that's good about them is that – they, when you structure them like this, it does give you the chance to throw in a couple new guys with a couple bigger names. So instead of having to have an Andy Anderson, John Walters match, like Jimmy Rave gets to have exchanges with a CM Punk and a Christopher Daniels, which maybe will help him. Like, I don't know if that will make a noticeable difference, but like, it's an interesting way of thinking about like, do you debut a guy against another unknown and let them go at it? Or do you deb- debut them in a match like this where maybe they can get overshadowed, but they also get to go toe-to-toe with some bigger names? Yeah, you, can't, you can't necessarily say it makes a difference, but if you look at all those guys who debuted, which one of them had the best, uh, the best ROH run, it was Jimmy Rave. And, and even if you go to the second step, which is Frankie Kazarian did not have, until recent years, like a, a Ring of Honor run at all. But he certainly had one of the best, probably, careers of all the guys that we're getting kind of tryout matches. I mean, more of a yeah. career than John Walters or Anderson or, or you know, Cross or anyone like that. So, For sure. Um, I did my the highlight of the whole match to me, and there wasn't really any like huge highlight, but I did think the first Punk time Punk and Daniels got in the ring, it felt like 
it's supposed to feel in wrestling when two big stars in a company face off for the first time in that company. Like the crowd definitely got a bit of a buzz to it and they were just doing their poses to each other and it kind of felt like a big deal. I feel like later in the match when they got back in the ring, they were just doing it as like random exchanges and it kind of lost that feeling. But their first encounter in this match, I feel like they kind of teased it out a little bit and it felt like, oh, oh yeah, like these two haven't faced each other in Ring of Honor yet. That that could be cool. And yeah, just just a average match. Um one thing Doug does on commentary. I thought Doug's been consistently like us average commentary, like not offensive at all, but not really notable. But I found the last couple shows he's been screwing up a few things on this one. During this match, he says, this match is do or die for Christopher Daniels because he's on a losing streak. And Gabe actually has to correct him and remind him that he just won round robin challenge two where he beat Red and London in the same night. So those are the kind of things, you know, the little story details that Doug seems to be missing a little bit occasionally. But it makes sense that Gabe would know them better than anybody because he's booking all of this. But he had to be reminded that, like, well, actually, you know, Daniels just won two matches. But... No, this this is a part of that storyline. This is Daniels after losing a bunch in a row. He's on the comeback trail, and they're setting up for his match against Samoa Joe. So another win here. And then after the match, we get another in-ring promo. This is the night of in-ring promos. Um, after the match, Daniels gets on the mic in the ring, and he says, ever since Steve Carino formed his group, he, Daniels has been searching for new members to join the Prophecy, and tonight he sees three prime candidates. Daniel praises each guy in the ring from the prior four-way match. He praises Kazarian for doing good in the match and at the most recent Super 8. He praises R- R- Jimmy Ray for surviving an ass-kicking tonight. Kind of a backhand compliment. And uh, Daniels then says that he and Punk have a lot in common. They're both from Chicago. They both kick ass. But as Daniels is listing these things they have in common, a fan heckle- in the crowd heckles Daniels which leads him to stop his promo and tell the fan that he wants shit from him. He'll scrape his tongue, and that's why he has the microphone and that fan's in the third row. Have you I heard think, that Have you heard that one before? Because I'm guessing I, he didn't make that up on the spot. No, I, I was about to say, I think Daniels has used that one before, yeah. maybe even in Ring of Honor. I think that might be like his go-to heckler yeah. response line that he has in his back pocket. Um, it's not a bad yeah, one, if I'm going to yeah, be Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, Daniels asks Punk what he would do no, he asked Punk um, what he would do if he offered him a spot in the Prophecy. Punk says he thinks Daniels is afraid of Punk, of wrestling Punk, and of the Second City Saints. But he goes on to say that that he will join the Prophecy if Daniels will just shake his hand. The crowd chants, just say no, which I thought was cute because that's, you know, the anti-drug catchphrase. Um, Daniels teases that he's going to shake hands but backs out the last second. And Punk says because of this, somewhere down the line, Daniels will be a dead man. Punk says in six months, Daniels will be begging him for a spot in the Second City Saints. Daniels says one day they'll wrestle and he'll drop Punk like a bag of dirt. And that's the gospel. So this is like setting up something that Gabe had planned for next year, which is the Second City Saints um, prophecy feud. And I thought there was a pretty good interaction between Punk and Daniels. I think every uh, in-ring promo on this show has been a hit. Um, not every match has been great, but I think all the in-ring promos have hit the mark, including this one. I think this sets up good stuff. I think the performances are good. Daniels is good on the mic. Punk is great on the mic. You know, it's 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 a good arc for Punk on the show, um, and the crowd reacts well to it, and it sets up stuff that's intriguing. So, I don't know. I, I think that this, from a booking standpoint, all these undercard angles have been a big success. 
And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about this being the period where Gabe's really setting up guys with multiple feuds, which can sometimes be good, sometimes be bad. If you look at Daniels, the prophecy still has the um, – they'll be wrapping up the, the feud with Kratos group next show, but – they're starting this punk feud already, or at least not starting it, but planting the seeds for it. And likewise, punk still has a long way to go with the uh, Raven feud. But again, this show, you know, there's there's almost less talk of the Raven feud and more focus on. To me, the the impression you leave with from the show is more. Punk and Daniels are going to have an issue down the line somewhere. Right, and Raven is is going to be back on the next show, and then he's, Punk's going to really be dealing with Raven almost exclusively for a few shows after this. But yeah, it's good that they they plan all these seeds for the for the really long term. And, and it's also good because um one of the matches will be Raven and Daniels versus Punk and I, I think Cabana. So it's you know, and the same with BJ being Raven's partner in the the match they're going to have on the next show. It, it's like Gabe is starting these other feuds for Punk, but they all get folded into the Raven feud, which right. is like an interesting way of doing things. But the next match, the semi-main event, is the Backseat Boys, Johnny Cashmere and Trent Acid, defeating Special K of Jody Fleisch and Slim J in 15 minutes, 45 seconds, when they pin, I forget which one did the pinning, but when they pin Slim J, the Backseat Boys, after they hit him with a T gimmick off the top rope, um, this was entertaining. This was a complete mess in some respects. This was, you know, wild. It had big spots. It had botches. It, 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 what, it, what it actually did was some of the early scrambles, maybe not the first ones, but some of the early scrambles kind of had this thing for me where there was a couple of them where I remember saying, like, I don't know if half of these moves are botches or them attempting to do really innovative stuff that I've never seen before, I felt like there were some moves <laughs> in, in this, in this match where I honestly did not know if they were botches or them doing exactly what they wanted to do. It, it kind of brought back that feeling the, now there was outright botches in this match, but there were some things that hit that level where I was like, well, I don't know. That might not be a botch. There was, but there was stuff like, um, a seven twenty DDT from, um, Jody Fleisch that did not really land looking flush or good, but Gabe just sells it as something that, that hit. Um, Slim J and Jody do a double suplex on one of the backseat boys, and for some reason, Slim J is facing in the opposite wrong direction, which makes the move look really awkward. Um, there's a weird flipping pile driver style move off the ropes, and again, I don't know if it was supposed to hit the way it did or not. It didn't really look impactful. There's Oh, sorry. Go on. No, no, I wasn't. I think I just oh, gasped. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, there, there was a weird segment where Slim early on, where Jay and Fleisch isolated I, someone, one of the backseat boys in the corner, and kept putting him in arm ringers, and then taking out, and the other guy put him in arm ringer, and they would do that over and over again, and then tr- uh, the other backseat boy just broke it up, and this it quickly ended with like no payoff or anything. Like you didn't know why they were doing that. Um, later on, there was a weird moment where Slim J breaks up a hot tag by knocking Cashmere off the apron. So you think, oh, this is going to be one of those classic tag team wrestling things where they really build the hot tag. And instead, seconds later, Trent Acid avoids a double team move, rolls to his corner to make the hot tag. And Gabe calls it as a hot tag, except Johnny Cashmere is already running into the ring before 
acid can even make the tag. Like it's a hot tag spot where there's no hot tag. Like it felt like a miscommunication. But all this for all the spotches, the not the spotches. That's a that's a botch of the word botch. Um, for all the weird moments, the botches, the moves. I don't know if there are botches. You know the exciting parts of that you would expect a match like this to have. The thing that everyone would talk about is near the end where the match just abruptly goes to the outside. Slim J and uh, Fleisch climb to the top of the scaffold that apparently is there to help set up the new Ring of Honor lighting rigs. And the, the scaffold starts shaking a little bit, which looks scary. And they do a double moonsault off the scaffold onto the backseat boys. And that is the big spot everyone is talking about. It leads to a weird ending, though, because... Immediately after they hit that giant double moonsault, Fleisch is selling like his knee is out. Like he's completely wrecked his knee. Eventually, Jay drag, Slim Jay drags Trent into the ring. The ref is slow in covering, so he, Slim Jay gets, I mean, in coming back in the ring. So Slim Jay gets this visual pinball, uh, not pinball, visual pin, I'm, I'm losing it. To, um, this, I'm well, this, 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 the match was so sloppy that yeah, it's um, just, it's gotten visual pinballs all over your, all yeah. over your eyes. We're gonna have to edit that. No, we're not gonna edit that out. But that, visual pinball. I mean, I'm you, sorry. I mean, if you want me to edit out all these spotches, <laughs> stop. We're gonna, we're gonna redo this whole review again. No, um, no. So anyway, the end of the match. Slim J covers Trent. He finally drags him back into the ring after the double moon salt. The ref is slow getting back in, so Jay gets a visual pinfall on Acid. And then <laughs> once the ref gets in, they make the two count. Trent kicks out. Acid and Cashmere get back in, and Slim J wants Fleisch to hit a big um, top rope move to end the match. Fleisch tries to go to the top, but he says his knee hurts too much and tells Jay to do it. And then immediately, Cashmere and Trent Acid pop up off the mat, acting like they were playing possum, and then they hit the the T gimmick off the top and end the match, which was kind of a weird ending for all of that. So but was Fleisch actually hurt? I I, I, I couldn't tell. I, I'm not sure. I, I have to think it was a gimmick. I, I'm not sure, but Matt, this was just. Like, not, it wasn't. Wait, it wasn't a T gimmick. It was a knee gimmick. <laughs> it was a knee gimmick that led to the T gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there was a small little person involved, it would lead to the Wii gimmick that we all see. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt, this this whole match is so weird. It was infecting my vocal patterns. Like I don't even know if to say this was good or bad or like like what did you think about this? This was this was just a weird match to me. Yeah, well, if this was good, then I have to reevaluate my entire system of evaluating what's good in wrestle in wrestling. But I agree with you that it also wasn't bad per se. Um, in that it was really bad, but it was also kind of fun. Um, I wrote that it was a super sloppy mess of a match, but definitely memorable. Like, people who went to the show remember this match. Um, it was just chaotic. It was crazy. Um, the, the first time, like, they showed the double moonsault off the scaffolding, the ca- the camera shot they used only showed one of the moonsaults. Which, yeah, and, and they don't... really miss a Slim J. Yeah, they don't do the... I mean, they don't usually do the in-match replays, so I didn't know if that was just going to stand, but then they showed a replay from a different angle where you saw both. Um, weird they didn't use that in the first place, but hey, what can you do? Um, Slim J apparently just turned 18 because this is the first time he gets to wrestle in Pennsylvania. So weird to think that like the other times we saw him, he was 17 years old. This is too young to be doing these jobs. Um, 
Uh, some of the like funnier stuff uh, on commentary that I can add. Um, Doug talking about spl- spotches. Um, Doug goes <laughs> these two. T- like he's talking about like how it's you know you usually see these teams in a scramble. He's like Doug goes these two teams are indicative to scramble matches. And I was thinking he probably <laughs> meant like indigenous maybe. I-, I don't know what he he meant. Um, but. Um, then Gabe is talking about one of the special K girls, or I guess there's only one at this point. He's like, that girl at ringside is kind of cute. And then he pauses. Then he says, wait, what am I talking about? She's a little too young for me. So if you want to just make his commentary even grosser than it was last time, now nah, you can. Um, so, um, but otherwise you really, you really covered it. Like they, it was just a, a lot of crazy sloppiness. All the moves that I would have mentioned are ones that you would mention, um, I thought probably of all the guys in the match, maybe Fleisch looked the best until he hurt himself later on. Slim J was way like just uh, I don't know if I want to say out of his depth, but he was he was definitely the sloppiest in the match. Uh, he was just messing up a lot of stuff, um, which makes sense. He was 18, um, but still doesn't change the way the match came off. The top rope T gimmick was impressive. It like it looked really like I would not want to have been Slim J there, but yeah, it was just a ridiculous match, like just ridiculous. Not, not, not a bad match to watch, but ridiculous. Even like the ending was so weird, but I guess they had to justify like your backseat boys are going to get hit with a giant double moonsault off a scaffold, and they're going to win the match like three minutes later. Like the t- the the top rope T gimmick was the only move I think big enough to like follow that, but it was just weird the way they like had them completely sell like they were dead and Fleisch selling like maybe that was real I don't know that his knee was out and then they just pop up and hit it and win it was it was a weird ending I continue to be fascinated by the reaction the backseat boys get in Philly from the Ring of Honor crowds they like get a very strong 50-50 like backseats and then the other half of the crowd will chat like sucks oh yeah like, that's another thing that I want to add like Gabe was like saying earlier like we don't know what's going on with the backseat boys like are they are they good guys are they bad guys what's it all about and he was yeah, using I, this as a selling point and I was like no that's just, that's just bad booking <laughs> yeah I actually quoted like the Gabe's word for word was what's the deal are they good guys bad guys I don't know like, like that was basically and it didn't like it didn't seem like that was Gabe doing that on purpose it just felt like Gabe was trying to rationalize why the backseat boys keep getting this reaction he's just like basically Gabe shrugging on commentary like uh well it's also what are you gonna do also backseat boys are not the only people in the promotion that are in that boat I would say Samoa Joe is definitely in that category right like he gets a face reaction in his matches I think but he is definitely not booked clearly as a face at all times and we just went over Punk is trying to do that, walk that line of he's the heel to most, but maybe the face to some. So right. it's not like, you know, we can't have this. But I, I think maybe it's just the nature of their gimmick where, you know, they played like the pretty boy strippers, basically. And I think some of the more hardened Philly fans just do not like that gimmick. Mm-hmm. But then some people like the Backseat Boys for their exciting kind of spot-filled matches. But... It is interesting. They get a very – I know in the past I've compared them almost to like the way the young bucks get a reaction online. And I still get that vibe where the crowd is like – it's not a fake dual chant. It's a it's a real dual chant where half the crowd likes these guys, half, of the, half the crowd doesn't. So, yeah, to sum up this match, I don't think it – like you were saying, I don't think it was good. It might have been bad, but I think it was a spectacle. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Yeah, so, for sure. A, a match like worth watching, if only as a car wreck. 
And finally, we go to the main event, the very first Ring of Honor world title match, unless you count the UK match as it becoming the world title. Samoa Joe successfully defends against Homicide. He beats him via pinfall in 17 minutes, 14 seconds, when he hits his first ever muscle buster, but not just a muscle buster, a muscle buster off the second rope. Um, Matt, before I throw it to you, I think I want to... I don't know where I'm going to put this, but I guess I'm going to put it right here. I wanted to point out, I went and found an old Samoa Joe shoot interview, and Joe had some thoughts about the match. So I thought before we give our thoughts, I'd give his. I just kind of recap them here briefly. So this is not word for word what Joe said. But Joe said, um, Homicide is the kind of guy who wants to leave something special in every match. And so before this match, he was telling Joe that they needed to do something crazy. I guess Joe was basically saying that was one of the reasons he broke out the muscle buster for this match. Um, Joe thinks Homicide had heard about the planned double moonsault spot in the previous match. Joe had not heard of it and got a little pissed off at the booking when he found out that there was going to be a double moonsault in the semi-main event. Joe says his exact words, he stressed like this is my exact words to Gabe were after I saw the double moonsault was, oh great. I'll go out and shoot homicide. I'll shoot him now, like him being homicide. <laughs> so Gabe is, Joe was apparently not like happy that he had to follow a double moonsault off a scaffold. Um, Joe said the muscle buster came from that urge to give the crowd something new, a move they'd heard of in theory but never seen in practice, which I thought, I thought that was interesting the way J- Joe put that, given that we've seen other Ring of Honor wrestlers hit the muscle buster. We had someone write into us and let us know that other wrestlers throughout the years have used the muscle buster, but Joe just felt like this was something he saw from that Japanese cartoon and picked up himself. Um, Joe thinks Joe has an interesting thought about this match. Joe says he thinks this was, this match was the first time Ring of Honor had a main event that wasn't just pure wrestling and a spec and a spectacle and athleticism, but he thinks this is the first time Ring of Honor had a world title match that had drama around it that was more than just the moves. And, uh, Matt, would you agree with that? And what do you think about the match as a whole? Well, the answer, I don't agree with it, because obviously we have the Paul London-Xavier matches, right? Yeah. Um, um, but I, you know, I, I don't know what you thought, but I really like this match a lot. Um I thought, I thought it, this was great. Yeah, I, I love this match. Yeah, it was just so much fun. It was different. It had an intensity. The you know I don't think Joe had to worry about following that double moonsault because Joe and Homicide by this point already had like star auras to these crowds, and this is kind of like I don't know if you would agree. This was the first real ROH Samoa Joe big match. You know what I, I mean? Like I wrote that. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like other matches Joe had later. Maybe a more like r- rough around the edges version of it, but. This was a Joe match. Like, Joe was making his mark on what his main events would look like. And this match invented that. Um, the crowd is on fire for it. And they just they just throw bombs at each other. And they're just like, like Joe rips Homicide's bandana off, kicks him, chops him. Um, and and uh, Homicide hits this crazy high-angle exploder suplex, drops Joe basically on, like, the top of his head. And Joe rolls to the outside... And when Homicide goes for a baseball slide, Joe immediately moves, grabs him, slams him into the guardrails. Um, and si- and then uh, si- uh, Joe goes for the ole ole kick. And by this point, he's actually getting the crowd to chant ole ole. So I guess that's another thing that maybe we missed by not watching Frontiers of Honor. Yeah, Gabe references that this was something that was picked up on that show. So I assume against the, Ze- the Zebra kid, he, uh, <laughs> he, that that's the first appearance of that. Maybe He had been doing the kick before Ring of Honor, but not... I don't think he was getting the Ole chance. 
Yeah. Until then. Exactly. So Joe, so uh, Homicide catches Joe's leg and then runs at him, and Joe catches him and hits a release belly to belly on the floor of the rec center. Just awesome. Like just like it's just like they're going a mile a minute. It's like everything has meaning though. It's really cool. Um, early on, also they they mention um, that uh, that Joe is susceptible to quick moves because he lost in like roll ups to Brian Danielson, and I actually like it because they. They play that up for like a long time in Joe's tile reign. That like the way you can get Joe is by doing a quick surprise like roll up or pin combination. Um, so this is like the like the first time they actually mention that, and it's a theme that stays with Joe for a while. So I wanted to make note of that. Um, Joe now hits the ole ole kick for real uh, into the new guardrail. Does it again? Dents uh, the guardrail, um, and and Gabe goes. I think that's going to catch on, and I think he was right. Um, I love that moment. There's like I love those moments. Like this is one of the best parts of going back and watching old stuff. Is like when someone predicts something and it becomes like you know you just like nod watch it. Like you don't know how right you are, Gabe. Like yeah. just this is a fun little moment like that. And homicides like the back of his head is cut up or the side of his head is cut up from the middle rail. Bad news. The uh, hopefully they fix those pretty soon. I know they do eventually. Um, so now. Um, German suplex uh, rolled into a dragon suplex by Joe. Uh, Homicide avoids the arm track suplex, but Joe eventually hits it anyway. They have a slap exchange, even while uh, Homicide sells being dazed. Like they like he's like he's like falling over, but then he slaps back. It's, it's good stuff. Um, Homicide does his jumping, swinging DDT on Joe. T- uh, and Joe rolls to the floor, and si- and. And Homicide, I'd say like one like knock, maybe Homicide recovered a little too quickly from all the abuse here because he's just back fully on offense. But, um, you know, in this kind of pace match, I don't mind it too much. Um, Smokes pulls out a table from under the ring and Homicide mostly overshoots a tope, Konhilo on Joe, and both guys fall through the table. Like, there really wasn't too much of a reason for Joe to fall back other than like you could argue like maybe if this was real that he... flips like he, he just he gets like so nervous that he trips back with homicide because homicide definitely doesn't knock him over but they yeah. both fall through the table um and the announcing the announcers are really putting over the hit the match and the atmosphere and they are right to do so it's it's just non-stop action um joe kicks out of a powerbomb pin but uh, oh excuse me homicide kicks out of a powerbomb pin and joe grabs the stf as is one of joe's signature spots that gets a huge pop joe gets the choke on and Loki comes out to ringside and yells for Homicide to start fighting. Uh, and Homicide gets out, gets out and grabs the STF as Key like uh, eggs him on. He's just like, "Yeah, come on, man!" Like, it's, which is it's just a really nice touch. Uh, Joe takes down Homicide with a big knee to the knee to the gut, and Joe says, "Fuck you to Loki. Uh, you didn't beat me for that belt," is what Loki says back. Um, Joe uh, hits like uh, a knockout knee, kind of as. Uh, as the ref counts to nine, and Key tells Homicide to get up. Uh, another slap by Joe knocks Homicide into the ropes in front of Loki, and this is the big moment where Homicide's in the ropes, like leg, laying in the rope face to face with Loki, and Loki's standing on the outside, and Loki just smacks him in the face and says, Get the fuck up! And of course, the crowd goes nuts. Homicide gets this like devilish smirk, and he smiles, and he gets to his feet, and Joe. Immediately grabs him, goes for the island driver, but Homicide escapes and hits a huge backdrop driver on Joe, and the crowd's going nuts. Uh, Homicide hits an ace crutcher, uh, snapmares Joe, and kicks him in the back. Uh, just, you know, the crowd's loving this. Obviously, I'm loving this. 
and the homicide hits a double stomp off the top. Joe kicks out. Um, homicide uh, with uh, homicide hits it boots Joe in the face. Joe's like kneeling on the mat. Joe blocks uh, a brainbuster, but homicide eventually uh, gets it. Uh, Gabe goes dangerous when he hits it. <laughs> Uh, Joe's out on the floor, and other refs come and and check on him as the crowd kind of goes quiet, like the like almost like Gabe does like a concerned voice. And even I'm watching it, and I'm like, was was this like a real injury? Because it was it was kind of it was kind of weird. Um, Homicide pulls Joe up because eventually all the refs kind of crowd around Joe, but Homicide they let Homicide pull Joe up, and Joe is basically playing dead. Um, so um, he. Uh, so, uh, oh yeah, the announcers say that the ref is putting Joe's life and career in jeopardy. Uh, homicide uh, kicks him in the head, and the crowd is sort of out of it. So, like, this is my one knock on the match is that I don't know if this was the right move to, like, have this weird injury spot this late in the match. Um, Joe gets up despite the kicks, and his left eye is basically swelling shut. So, obviously, something real happened to him. Um, homicide put Joe on the top rope. And then a Key and Smoke start arguing on the floor. And this distracts Homicide enough that Joe grabs him and he hits the top rope muscle buster or the middle rope muscle buster and gets the pin. Um, I love the match. I love the story. I thought it was great. I did think the finish was a little bit awkward. But other than that, I thought the match was just, it was just gangbusters. Like, it was just so much fun. I, I thought, I, I love this match too. I thought it was a great, great match. Um, I, you know, we'll say for our honor awards, our honors at the end of the 2003, but like, I mean, I don't know where it ranks, but I did think it's definitely, if I was thinking of just the matches off the top of my head for 2003 Ring of Honor so far, obviously the first that comes to mind is Danielson versus London. And then I think of the two matches London had the second anniversary show. And I think I'm going to think of this match too, at least until we see some other matches. Like this is in that conversation for greatest matches of 2003 and so far in ring of honor i think you were absolutely right i think you nailed it when you said this was like the first joe match that felt like what we would come to think of joe matches as like what i wrote is people would always use the phrase and it got to be so overused during the mid 2000s but like oh this match had a big fight feel but joe matches really did like the title matches had a big fight feel they felt like events and I think this is the first one. Like the Williams match didn't feel like this when he injected in, inserted himself into that four way at, at Epic Encounter. It didn't feel like this. This is the first time like a Joe title match feels like this is an event. This is going all out. I, I think Homicide and Joe, when they wrestle with each other, in some ways it is like a back and forth, back and forth indie match. But there's such weight to everything they do. Like, they really sell the gravity of everything. I think they're selling and how hard they're hitting each other and, like, the little moments they take between moves. Like, it feels like a titanic struggle when these two wrestle. And this just felt like an event. Uh, um, they're being they're wrestling each other, like, super hard, too. Like like you said, um, Joe gets a swollen eye by the end of the match. Um, Homicide cuts himself, presumably, on the sharp guardrail sign. They're, they're just hitting each other hard. When Homicide gives that brain buster to Joe that Gabe goes dangerous on, that has to be one of the lowest brain busters I've ever seen. Like, he barely gets him up, which makes it even scarier looking. Um, and my favorite part of the match is that part you talked about where 
Loki comes down middle of the match and he slaps Homicide in the face and Homicide um, hulks up. And it's basically like a WWE Hulk up spot or like out of a Rocky movie where Homicide's at his low point and he gets slapped and encouraged and he like hits a major move. And it's the, the crowd just comes unglued like that's to be one of the three to five like loudest crowd reactions we've heard in ring of honor so far i love homicide smile there like that that's the wwe guy wouldn't do that like they they, he'd get that like a determined look on his face and homicide is just like all right motherfucker like i'm like you know now i'm awake and that's one of those things that works that that works better in indies than wwe because that's the kind of thing where that moment of homicide of Loki like pumping up homicide with like telling him to get up and slapping his face and homicide's um, smile. Everyone in that crowd of five hundred loses their mind because they all get it. If you couldn't do that in a crowd of twelve thousand, right? Like that's the thing you could only do in an intimate setting like this, where it plays just for that crowd that's right on top of you, and. I think at that moment they go get so loud when Homicide hits like the backdrop driver and he's setting up for another move. I think at that moment they think they're going to see a title change. I think they think Homicide's going to win this. Right. Well, there's so there's no reason to think that they were going to protect Joe for that long because instance like there's no precedent for it. So I think this is like one of the real believable like possible title changes. Yeah, and it just a great match. I mean, the the muscle buster also get gets a big reaction. I do have two criticisms of this match. First one's a minor one. It's what you said earlier when Homicide did the Tope Con Hilo, and I think Homicide does the best Tope Con Hilo in wrestling, but it's like he set up that spot and there was no way it wasn't going to look stupid. Because as you said, he sits at the table, Joe is like right against the apron, and even if Joe wasn't right against the apron, Homicide always sh- comes out of that Tope. Tobey can heal like so fast and so far. That's one of the things that makes it great. But he was always going to overshoot Joe, and so instead, it basically looks like. And I've seen Homicide have Tobey can heal us like this before, where it basically looks like he's throwing himself into a table, and the other guy is basically like putting their hand above their head, trying to touch Homicide as much as they can. But Homicide's coming with so much force and speed and distance. There's no way they can really catch him, and I, I think he does that sometimes, and it looks kind of dumb. So that's my one minor criticism. My other criticism that is a bit more major is I felt like Loki coming out added and took away from the match because I think it added with that moment we talked about, that mid-match moment. I love the visual at one point where you see a camera shot and Loki is on one side of the ring and on the direct opposite side of the ring, Julius Smokes is there. And they're both cheering on Homicide and in between them is Homicide in the ring. And I thought that was like a great visual representation representation of their feud up to this point of just like here's these two friends that are completely different and they're both cheering on homicide but they're like homicides in the middle of them they both hate each other but the one thing they have in common is this guy in the middle that's their friend and but the thing i didn't like about loki being there was the camera work at some point the editing of this they got completely distracted by loki being at ringside at some points they focused on him when major things were happening like Joe gets homicide in the choke, and they had been building up the choke really hard to the point where in that epic encounter multi-man match, you know, they built they built up the idea that someone did a frog splash to Joe and it didn't get Joe to take off the choke. Like, what can break the choke? Well, in this match, homicide breaks the choke, and we never see it because the camera's on low key just yelling, come on, homicide. So I thought that was like, I'm sure they had more than one camera angle on that, and yet 
They never like make a big deal of homicide breaking the choke. They never show us how. When the last few shows, the big thing was like Samoa Joe's choke is going to be so hard to break. Who could possibly break out of it? It just happens here. So that was a little bit weird. And then the end, I, I think we missed some of um, Homicide and Joe are fighting on on the top or second rope. And the whole point of the end of the match is supposed to be Homicide has Joe beaten. And he gets distracted by Smokes and Low Key arguing at ringside. And then ho- Joe hits the muscle buster, wins the match. And we do catch the muscle buster, but again, I felt like the camera got kind of distracted, so it maybe didn't get across quite the point that, like, Homicide was about to win this match. It doesn't quite feel like that because of the, for me, the, the way the camera kept shifting. But obviously, at after the match, we see um, Smokes and Loki help Homicide up, and Homicide just is so defeated, and he's like, I had him, man, I had him. And I, So obviously, the point of this match was supposed to be, like I said, Homicide had the win, and his friends cost him the match. But I, I feel like maybe that point in the match didn't get off quite as much as it should. Yeah, and I, and I really want to, want to reiterate, I, I did not like the fact that they had the Joe injury thing near so close to the end. Because that match was on fire after that low-key slap moment. Like, the crowd was nuts. And then they just go quiet. And they never get them all the way back in time for the finish because they don't do enough. You know, like they, like all the big spots were before that. So I don't know why they chose to do it that way, unless it was an actual injury, which is, I guess, possible. But I thought that really that kind of hurt the match. I don't know what what, what how, if you noticed that too. I did. I, I'm I'm wondering like you how much of that was real. It felt like a planned spot because even though Joe did get his eye was starting to swell swell up bad, it wasn't like a serious injury. It looked like at that point, and he wasn't really favoring it. it I don't know if that was just to protect homicide. Because, did I give him this out? Because I felt like it almost made Joe look a little bit bad because it was like at one point Homicide like wants to go keep being on Joe and try and get the win. And the refs are like, just like stand back for a minute and checking on him. And I felt like that was almost it makes it almost makes it look like, well, maybe Homicide could have beat him right there if it wasn't for these refs right. like making this decision to check on him. So I don't know if that was a weird way to protect Homicide or 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 to try and add extra drama. Again, maybe like Joe says Homicide was looking for extra things they could do and trying to top what was the match that was going to come right before them. Maybe they felt like they needed that to add extra drama. I agree with you. It was not needed at all. And if anything, like you said, took away maybe a bit of the heat that they had built. But overall, this was one of the best matches we've seen in 2003 so far. You know, maybe not on the level of Danielson London, but like a great match. Certainly certainly the best ROH title match so far. Yeah, and and a different feeling match. Than a lot of them. I was gonna say maybe like, the re- maybe the crowning a champion match was on par, but it's close. This match was different, like you said. Great atmosphere. The atmosphere was really one of the things that really made it too. And, and great drama and the story. You know, when it wasn't distracting with the camera angles, was a good story. I mean, I think Loki did add to it. Man, um, now now I want to go watch it again. Yeah, it, it, this is this for people that haven't seen this. This is one of those matches that's like this is one of the ones you should go out of your way to see this match. This is a great match. I think it's even. I think we appreciate even more when you watch every show and you realize that matches like this don't come along every show, but great match. Um, I just love like, this is a match that when you watch these two, it feels like they're like, they would wrestle the same match if they were main eventing WrestleMania. Like they're holding nothing back. They're just like giving so much and trying so hard. It doesn't feel like they're leaving anything on the table. 
But, Matt, we forgot the best moment, which I put on my Twitter, which is at one point, Joe gets homicide in the STF. He starts talking shit, like screaming shit to homicide, and his gum falls out of his mouth. He puts the gum back in his mouth. Oh, yeah. And Gabe calls it during commentary. Gabe goes, and I quote, will homicide give? Joe saves his gum. Like, <laughs> like, like, like he's calling the wrestling. And then just without a beat, he just also has to tell us, yes, Joe saved his gum. So I thought that was pretty hilarious. Too. The most intense match I've ever seen that also had a guy like, ooh, I lost my gum. Like, I better put my gum back in my And an mouth. announcer yelling, he saves his gum, matter Joe of fact. Joe saves like, his gum. Um, Pointy stick. <laughs> another great. I'm going to miss Gabe when he stops having fun commentary moments like this. He needs, to, he needs to commentate Evolve. Now, that would be something. <laughs> I love Lenny Leonard, but yeah, maybe for like, they should have done that for 100. Had, yeah. Um, Evolve 100, have Gabe return. Have, have Chris Lovey commentate that show. <laughs> so, yeah, after the match, we get Joe. He uh, shakes a prone homicide's hand while he's lying on the canvas. And there's this moment where the, it looks like they're building to a low-key match at this point because he's staring low-key right in the eye, very intense as he shakes homicide's hand. Like, look what I did to your friend. Um, homicide eventually comes to, and like I said, he's near in tears Really good acting here, basically going like, I had him, like a vulnerable homicide moment that you don't see much, like over and over again. He's just can't believe he could have had him and he let up his guard for one second and lost. Um, we immediately cut backstage to a Joe promo where he's sitting down with a title belt. We can see that he's getting a black eye from the match. He says the Ring of Honor title is the only title that matters anymore and puts it. he puts it over big. He tells Christopher Daniels he's going to finish things between them. And he ends with his, I think this might have been his first in Ring of Honor, I am Samoa Joe, I am professional wrestling, which would become kind of one of his catchphrases. Yeah, his catchphrase. And he kisses the Ring of Honor title belt. Again, this is one of the first times where it just plays off the match. I was getting those like, this feels like the Samoa Joe title right now. Yeah, exactly. Putting over the belt so huge, that kind of authority he has, you know, it, it felt like it here. And then... We get a Christopher Daniels in an empty ring with Alice in Danger. This is the big empty arena thing they've been teasing. And he's waiting for Joe, who soon comes out. Joe runs to the ring. They roll around for a couple seconds, and it's quickly broken up by a bunch of officials and wrestlers. Joe's dragged to the back. Daniels is dragged to the back while Joe says the fun's just beginning. I wonder Joe if there was supposed there. to be. I wonder if there was supposed to be more to it, but then maybe Joe's eye made it not happen. Like because I mean it's weird, right? That they built. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. Because they have this official challenge, and Gabe's telling us not to fast-forward to the end, and they're acting like it's going to be like an empty arena match almost, like we're going to get a bonus match. And instead, it's literally like a five or ten seconds of rolling around the mat. Yeah, like that's, nothing that's, nothing out of the ordinary at all. Yeah, so, I, I yeah, it's one of the – I think this is one of the shows that's – of all the shows we've seen so far, it's like a high point of Gabe's booking where he's getting really good with the angles and the feuds and the promos and how segments flow. I think on this show, this is like the one big misstep he made. Like, yeah, agreed. It, it, it's not that it kills the show, but it's just he put too much emphasis on a nothing segment. Agreed. And at that point, we end with one more little segment. We go backstage to a screaming Christopher Daniels who's being held back by officials. He closes the door so it's just him in danger in a room with the cameraman. He cuts an intent, a very – probably the most intense Christopher Daniels promo we've seen in Ring of Honor so far. Saying that the next show, the prophecy will face the group, Steve Carino's group, in a six-man tag. Uh, 
lots of swearing that you don't usually hear from Christopher Daniels. And he uh, eventually tears off his shirt in anger and tells the camera guy to get the fuck out of there. So again, Daniels is usually not a potty mouth, very angry, very intense on this promo, basically just mad about everything that's happening lately to the prophecy. Which is good because that's different than the way Daniels usually is. Yeah, it was a definite change. So that ends do or die. Before I go to our thoughts, I think I thought I would bring up this little comment I saved from Dave's live reports of the of the show. Dave writes about do or die. It was said to be the best overall show, but not the best collection of wrestling matches the group had done. CM Punk, Samoa Joe, Homicide, Matt Stryker, and Tom Carter all came off like superstars, while Jimmy Ray, Frankie Kazarian, J-Train, Dixie, and Izzy showed a lot of potential to be players. So, um, he, he, there might have been a t- too many names there in the recommendations, but like, in a weird way, at first when I read this, when I was doing research, I thought, eh, that's a, that's going to be too much like praise. But in a weird way, I get what they're saying. Like, I get... This was not the best show in terms of a collection of wrestling matches, although it did have one great match. But I do think it was, like, in some ways, it felt different than their other shows. And I felt in terms of, like, giving you those angles, in some ways, this did set a a new high. Yeah, this was a must-see show if you like early ROH. It's like a really defining show as far as tone, as far as characters. It does have the one really great match, then a lot of you know, you know, matches of varying degrees of quality. Um, but yeah, I, I I could definitely see that that this was the best um, ROH show overall as far as pacing and flow and all of that stuff. Um, I when I was talking to you earlier, I compared it to like a particularly good episode of Monday Night Raw, where it's very angle heavy. It was very reliant on atmosphere and just like fast-paced things happening, plus a great main event. And that's how I would describe it. Like a really great episode of Raw as opposed to, let's say, like a really great pay-per-view event, if that makes sense. Or almost like an ECW arena show. Like major things happened. They came off well. It was super exciting. And you had the one great match to really hammer it home. Um, if it didn't have that great main event, I don't know how I'd say about it overall, but I do know that even before I got to it, the, I watched this match very, this show very quickly because it was incredibly entertaining. It just, it just moved. And ROH, that's definitely not something that you could say about oh, a lot of ROH shows up to this point. The pacing was good. The booking was good. The crowd heat was good. Um, it was a really good presentation. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's, I'd say it's, it's in the short list of best ROH shows so far overall. I wonder, though, if this is a show that people who don't watch every Ring of Honor show from this era will like less. Because I think one of the reasons we appreciate it as much as – I think it's a great show or a very good show no matter what. But I think one of the reasons we like it so much is because we notice the change in production and how different it is in terms of the in-ring promos or even that match we talked about that had – the scramble match where they cut away from the stir of the scramble match to the promo. Like if you're just watching like WWE and you watch that, you would go, well, what's the big deal about that? But if you watch every ring of honor show up to this point, you know what a change that is to try stuff like that or the number of angles and how everyone now seems to be having multiple feuds. Like, but even without that, I think it just has this great vibe to it. I think like you said with the raw thing, it has this vibe of a great raw in the sense, even that like, after the first match, we had an in-ring promo from Low Key that teases dissension with Julia Smokes, and then the very last match, it all ties together. Like like stuff like that is a feeling that Ring of Honor, they hadn't tried stuff like that often, and quite frankly, they wouldn't always do that stuff 
in the future, but here they have it. And it, in, in terms of just like marquee matches and great matches, it's a one match show. But even then, like forgetting all the angles and the difference of how this show is to other shows, if you just go from a wrestling standpoint, I think that match is great enough to go out of your way to see the show. If it didn't have all the angles and promos and neat stuff, like that's a great match. That's worth, and that's a match that, you know, I think people remember that Homicide and Joe had great matches, but it, I don't think this match gets as much love as it deserves. Now, can I just say something just to, to make a personal comment? Those of us listening to the show have heard a lot of Trevor Dame's reviews of matches. And we have never heard Trevor Dame be this uh, vocal about how much he liked something. Um, so you know that this is a great match. As far as the, term, the, the adjectives and the enthusiasm in your voice, this is the best match in ROH history so far. Um, uh, I think what I would do is, I think what happens is, obviously I love the classics, like the Era of Honor Begins, Triple Threat, and Danielson Key, and, um, and, um, Danielson London, but I think the ones where my voice, where I really get that extra enthusiasm, you'll, long-time listeners will probably know, it's like, Jay versus Mark the first time, and this match, and even Danielson versus Daniels from Round Robin Challenge, where they're like, I think great matches that maybe don't get as much. So I almost feel like I have to try harder for those matches because, <laughs> like, when you're calling Danielson low key, it's like everyone knows that's a great match, and and you're gonna take the lead on enthusiasm on that match where it's almost like I'm not gonna be able to match your enthusiasm. True. Where uh, on something like this, it's like I almost feel like we have to let people know like. This isn't just another homicide low. Key, I mean, homicide Joe match. Like this is great. Yeah, and, and I and I wasn't saying it to make fun of you in any way. No, I was no, saying no, like no, absolutely like no. with like this. You you can tell like this is this is the real deal. Yeah. This. So yeah, go out of your way to see this match. This is a great match, and go out of your way to see this show. Big recommendation, which is pretty crazy for a show with again so few marquee matches. A lot of the big names are not on the show, and in a lot of ways. This show is just like moving the chess pieces for bigger shows down the line, but yet manages to be such a success. Yeah, it really was. And ROH is awesome in, to, in this part of 2003. I think you've heard, if you've listened to the most recent shows, all the shows are good. All of them. Yeah, the, the, they're just hitting a, a real hot streak here. And we'll continue to see if that hot streak goes on on the next show. Because our next episode, we will be reviewing Night of the Grudges, which will have a group versus prophecy six-man tag where the losing team must disband. And we'll be getting, for the first and last time in Ring of Honor, AJ Styles versus Paul London one-on-one. <sighs> so that will be our next show. And if in Hits the meantime... Coming. Yeah, if you guys want to contact us at where we can be, you can email us at through the years at gmail.com, T H R O H for through. You can contact us at Trevor Dame on Twitter or at Mayor MGF on Twitter. On the Figure Four Wrestling Message Board, the Voices of Wrestling Message Board, the Pro Wrestling Only Message Board, the ROH World Rest Message Board. Every one of those boards has a thread about the show. We check them periodically. And yeah, this was just a lot of fun podcast, a lot of fun podcast to do. And that's not great grammar, Trevor, but I had a good time watching the show. I had a good time doing the podcast tonight. Yes. And yeah. And yeah, I really will just reiterate everything you just said. Watch this show. It's, it's, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. So thank you everybody. And tune in next time. Thank you so much. And goodbye.